Welcome to Prussian Socialism, bringing you culture, whether you like it or not. Today, I'm back with William, and we're talking about the Dutch East Indies. I just read a book about it called The Story of the Dutch East Indies by Bernard Vlecky. <laughs> Sorry, there's, there's going to be a lot of jokes at the expense of the Dutch today. Oh, yeah. uh, this is like a, this is a corner of history that I didn't know anything about, really. I mean, I knew the Dutch colonized Indonesia and then that the Japs took it from them in 1940 or whatever. Yeah. But that was about the extent of it. And most Westerners have no idea about this element of our history. Like as far as the origins of we think of we think of colonialism, we think of Richard like Richard Kipling and like the Jungle Book and stuff. Yeah, you think of India or you think of the British Cortez in Mexico or if you if you are going to think about the the origins of colonialism, you think of the genocide of of the Aztecs and the Incans and stuff. Like that's about it. Yeah, what you get in U.S. history in school will be talk about explorers and you'll talk about the portuguese exploration of africa and then vasco da gama getting to india if, if they talk about vasco da gama no, no, it'll, it'll be columbus. talked about but it basically that's it it's just like the portuguese got to india he did the thing and then columbus right and there's no con- continuation of well oh so they built an empire that lasted for 500 years right. across the indian ocean and most don't say why columbus even sailed out that was the thing like that's like they'll say okay they'll maybe touch on it like oh he was trying to find india or whatever but they don't get into the, like the real political reasons of why they needed to do that in the first place um so there's like oh, we have a whole bunch to talk about as far as the lead up even to the dutch indies for this but uh, yeah but the dutch east indies is interesting because one it's just this part of the world that is basically the exact opposite of America. Oh, yeah. It's so foreign. <laughs> and also because it's the Dutch. And you don't really think <laughs> of the Dutch as being great imperialists. Right. You maybe are vaguely aware that, or I, I, I am, we are all vaguely aware that they took over Manhattan and then were kicked out by the British. Right. Or they took over South Africa and were kicked out by the British. Right. But they also took over the Indies and the British only occasionally kicked them out. Right. They had a very hard time doing it. And so for like the majority of the 1600s, they were the powerhouse of Europe. In fact, they actually had a larger fleet than the British. They had more troops and all kinds of other stuff. Um, oh, so you're talking like 1500s here. 1600s. Six, yeah, okay. 17th century. But um. Because the VOC wasn't even created until uh, so let, let's go ahead and, and and break that real quick. So actually, actually, let's let's leave it to the lead up, and then we'll go to the creation of the VOC and, and all their fun ships. So the the lead up to the whole age of exploration, which was at the end of the Reconquista, right of Spain, and the kicking out of the Moors and everything else in the 1490s and all that, that fun stuff. And we all know that Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492, right? So the reason why he did that, though, is because around the same time period, you had the fall of Constantinople with the Ottoman Turks. Yeah, right. Um, that would have been you know, 40 years before. So that was right. Now, this the, the Turkish threat in the Mediterranean was real. Right. Hardcore. And so now that Spain, uh, I, well, effectively, Iberia had uh, gained its independence from the Moorish uh, Tur- or the Moorish uh Muslims and Berbers Berbers yeah okay so yeah so this uh, this is another an, little, an Islamic group <laughs> this is a pet niche part of history of mine is yeah, North Africa it's, and it's the Berbers <laughs> so the thing is is that so they they kicked them out they were able to uh, regain control of Iberia uh, and and their their own you know 
destiny, as as one would say. Uh, but Constantinople was really a big deal as far as when it fell to the Ottomans because it cut off Europe uh, by any land or effective land route to uh, East Asia, right, for the silk trade routes. Um, silk roads. Well, and all I that guess because stuff. the Turks consol- by consolidating power in the Eastern Mediterranean, the Turks could jack up the tolls to whatever they oh, yeah. wanted, and or just cut people off in general from trade. Because again, like these these uh, the things that we consider to be just flavors for food, like spices, these things were used to preserve meat. And if you couldn't have these types of things for your military, you couldn't really fund your military. Right? You couldn't send you know, long boy, or you can send troops on, on long excursions because you didn't have anything to preserve food. And that was a big deal back in the day. So they could easily, the Ottomans could just cut Europe off from all these trades, these goods, right? And this thing, arms were another thing too, right? Raw materials for arms and armaments and all this other stuff that came through these trade routes. Like it was a massive deal. So cutting off Europe through Constantinople or what, and then it became Istanbul was a, a big reason for the age of exploration or the, the point of, of, of heading out. And Portugal and Spain kind of jumped on that first because they had that that fiery gusto after kicking the Moors out. There was also some talk back then among, among the Spanish and the Portuguese about getting around Islam's flank mm-hmm. because it was they'd been fighting this long war against the Arabs or the uh, the Berber Muslims in southern Spain and now they're thinking all right well we continue the crusade we got to get around uh, behind the Muslims and yeah. and there was a there was a massive kind of discourse that actually happened there where they were contemplating whether or not to even send Columbus and Vasco da Gama out uh, as compared to funding instead a renewed crusade into Morocco. Uh, and they they chose obviously the latter. <laughs> yeah, they or the, they chose the, the prior, you know, uh, rather than, than going. Into yeah, Morocco. it's too bad. I mean, I think European, it, it all would have played out a lot differently yeah. if they'd gone with the crusade into Morocco option. I mean, they definitely there was a Portuguese invasion of Morocco uh, and they were disastrously defeated. But and there was some colonization in North Africa, Seunta, Seunta, and uh, but it the Canary Islands and all that fun stuff. Yeah, but the thing about taking Morocco would have been that you would have had like a it it conforms to the Hitler Lebensraum principle of actually getting land to settle people on, increase your population, and the fertile lands too in North Africa. Yeah, uh, it was the breadbasket of the Roman Empire. Right. So, well, one of the breadbaskets. Part of yeah. But a very major, major one. Yeah. But instead, they decided to strike out and use their naval power and navigation ability to get to the Americas and get to India. And when they say navigation ability, they aren't talking about Columbus because Columbus was not very good as a navigator. He was not Vasco da Gama. Vasco da Gama was easily the better sailor. And he's the one who create. Who, he's he's the one who charted all the uh, the trade winds, right? Like the, the the circular trade winds that go around all the different oceans. About how to navigate from uh, the coast of, because what they would do is they would they would hook around from Portugal. They would hook around and go towards South America, right? Mm-hmm. And catch that wind going that way. So that's where they hit Brazil. And then from Brazil, they would sail south and they'd hook around down south and then go towards the Cape of Africa rather than going down the, the, the side. So down the Ivory Coast, the west coast of Africa, uh, you're fighting against the current. Right. Uh, so it's easier for them to sail around like in a circle going from around South America, like, you know, down south, hook around the open ocean and go to the Cape of, of what became Cape of Good Hope or Cape Town. And then you caught the other wind going up the east coast of Africa into India. And so on the way... And, yeah, and then yeah. on the way back, you could only sail back at 
know, a few months of the year. Yeah. Like uh, you look at all, look at all the oceans and they look at it as a circular pattern and they all, they, not all of them go in the same direction, obviously. And so they have to catch the, the right current. And so the Portuguese mapped this out in the late 1400s, like the late 1400s, late 1500s. They were like, this is, this is at, at the time, cutting edge technology isn't a term that you can actually use to justify what they discovered. Like this is some unbelievable discovery that they were able to pull off. Right. And wasn't it true that Portuguese admirals or captains, they had the, the charts in their desk, in their captain's cabin in the ship. And you were supposed to, if you got taken over, clutch those to your body and jump off the ship or just, yeah, destroy them. They they had to be destroyed in some way, shape or form. And And it took it. They, for centuries, I think they, preserve their years. monopoly on that uh, 100 years knowledge. they did it. yeah and then so and then, well yes yeah, so then then that gets into our, our next fun bit here about the dutch so but for nearly 100 years the portuguese kept these trade secrets and columbus didn't use these trade secrets he actually was a fool uh and well look it's not hard you just get in a boat and you go west you can't miss it that's literally what he tried to do and so <laughs> he was fighting against currents and all kinds of other fun stuff because he was going directly through what would have been the swirling toilet of the atlantic ocean right <laughs> and so or the north atlantic so and what they would do also i uh, when they were coming home they would hook around the Caribbean and Americas, right? And then go up through the Azores and back to Portugal. That was the easiest route to come back. So Columbus was going in the exact opposite direction of these currents, getting over to the New World because he went like right, straight across. Yeah, yeah. So Columbus didn't know what the hell he was doing. Because it goes, North Atlantic current goes counterclockwise. So if you're sailing yeah. from the Canaries to America, you're going yeah, it's a quick, into the current. Yeah, it's quick because it, it, it it peters out like or it kind of goes along the the north coast of south america right it comes around from there so columbus screwed that up and that also caused his men to want to mutiny actually towards the end there and the only thing that saved him was finding uh hispaniola and you know all the natives and fun stuff and then we all know the story of of columbus right and the, the cannibals that they encountered when they first got over there so Columbus aside vasco da gama was the was the big guy here so vasco da gama's expeditions were the ones that really spurred on later exploration to the actual indies so when he went and discovered that stuff and he came back uh he was the first one to come back to portugal with you know spices from the indies like holy crap i found the way now the thing is though is that it's not easy like he it wasn't just oh we'll go over there and start trading and that's like the big deal that you know people in the west don't really understand it's not that oh all these big bad europeans came over there and started exploiting all these poor little natives that had nothing no they had to fight off huge empires at the time like the the uh islamic empires stretched all the way again to indonesia uh which is why indonesia still to this day is the largest islamic country by population well they had to fight yeah the memelukes and the red sea area and they had to fight the Later, the the Turks, the Mughals was a big was a big one as well, right? Later on, as so you have these, all these giant empires that were vying for control of the spice trades, and the, the the Islamic world had control of the spice islands and the spice trade for a long time at this point, right? Like it had established for hundreds of years uh, an established trade route through this area, and they were trading with China. They had you know trade with Japan, even um, you know th- there was just like a, a mass amount of trade that was happening in that part of the world and still to this day it is the largest trade hub is east east asia so eventually what happened though so over 100 years the portuguese kind of kept this uh this trade secret and they didn't allow anybody else to have it i mean eventually in 1580 the spanish crown absorbed uh the portuguese nation into into its fold and so iberia became united now what 
ties us into the Dutch is because the Dutch at this point in time, or at the time, uh, the United Provinces, or they really weren't united at the time, but the provinces of the Netherlands were under control by the Spanish crown as well. And so they wanted to get out from underneath that yoke because they were completely different, obviously, as most people tend to do. And they did a lot of trade with Lisbon when Portugal was still, uh, still before 1580, they were still there, like Amsterdam and Portugal uh, or in Lisbon specifically, were doing a lot of trade from these these spice trades, right? So the, the, the Portuguese would bring the spices back to Lisbon. And then from Lisbon, they traded to the Dutch and everybody else. And the Dutch were making a killing profit doing this. They were like, oh, wow, this is great. We're getting it from Lisbon for the cheap. We bring it back to Amsterdam. We sell it to Central Europe. Cool. But as soon as the Spanish took over, because the Dutch were trying to get their independence from Spain, they were like, okay, cool. You can't trade with Lisbon anymore. Get fucked. And so the Dutch were like, crap, now we are losing. We don't need money now. Like We can't fund our war against Spain, right? So that was one of the big ways that they were able to fund. The provinces were able to fund their war against the Spanish uh, rulers was through the spice trade from Portugal. And so they needed to find a new way out, right? They're like, all right, crap. Well, we're, we're screwed if, if we can't find another way in there. Now, there were two Dutchmen that took it upon themselves, and they were not paid by anybody, and this is one of my favorite parts about this, is that they weren't paid by anybody, they had no reason to do this, it was of their own Dutch volition, right, to espionage and steal <laughs> the uh, the secrets of the Portuguese. So they weaseled their way, and the Portuguese had a very, ra- as people would say, racist ideology, where they only hired Portuguese people for their, their trade overseas. Like, all their officers, everybody else, all Portuguese. It makes sense. You want to keep your trade secrets from your own people. Right, you don't want to staff your navy with, like, Chinese people right when you're you know America and you're gonna fight China maybe womp womp <laughs> lesson to learn guys but yeah so the Portuguese or Israelis I mean you know worse you name name a group yeah, right, right. That, that doesn't like you but as, as we tend to do here in the US but yeah so the Portuguese only hired Portuguese uh, for good reason now they fucked up uh, after 1580 they <laughs> they they fucked up they hired two two Dutchmen uh, in de- and they were not together. These Dutchmen were not in this together. They had they had no uh, idea of each other's existence within the uh, Portuguese Navy. Um, the one, though, that was the famous guy, uh, or more famous than the other, was a man by the name of Jan van Linschoten. And he was stationed in India from the Portuguese, and one of the Portuguese trading posts, I think at Goa. So Goa was, uh, was one of the longest standing Portuguese trade routes or trade hubs yeah. in the western part of India, or was southwestern part of India, uh, near the, I guess it wasn't really an empire, but the nation of Mysore. So, and they did a lot of trade in the interior there. So he was stationed at Goa, I'm pretty sure for, uh, might have not have been Goa, but somewhere on the western coast of India for, I think, a period of two to three years. Uh, and meticulously being Dutch, he would go and squirrel away at night and find all their their trade secrets, all their maps, all their stuff. And so he would find, you know, like everything down to um, down to the tiniest minutia of, of, of sailing charts, like where the, the reefs were, where certain storms had popped up and certain things. And he got all the data you could possibly imagine from these people's travels for over 100 years and compiled it all into his own personal little notes. And then... One day, he just went back to Amsterdam, and he was like, cool, I retire, quote-unquote, from the Portuguese Navy. Cool. And the Portuguese didn't think anything of this for whatever They didn't whatever think reason. to, like, inspect his papers or anything. Makes no sense why they didn't. And I don't, I, to this day, I have no idea why the Portuguese didn't just, like, frisk this guy and search through his trunk, clearly. But anyway, he got away with all the Portuguese trade secrets. What a little rat. Yeah. And so, there was one other guy that did the same thing. And now, by chance, both of these dudes met up in Amsterdam, and they're like, wait a minute. You stole from the Portuguese too. And so they get together and they write a book called the Itinerario, right? And this book was then published by what became the VOC or the Dutch East India Company, right? And 
uh, and well, originally it was called the uh, the company for far or company for far lands or company of far lands or for far yeah, lands. Yeah. Okay. So that and was so VOC stands for Vereinigte Ust Indische Compagnie. <laughs> <laughs> it is ridiculous sounding. We're going to be making a lot of fun of the Dutch. <laughs> <laughs> it's just too easy. Not so, to- it really is. Their their language just sounds like a funny. <laughs> well, it's like you'll pick English or German, right? You know, just and drop that weird accent. But <laughs> <laughs> but um, so they find each other. They write this book, and it's published by this company, right? In uh, in sixteen hundred or sixteen oh one, and so uh, this is how the Dutch became a powerhouse. It's literally this book. So this book explains uh, all the trade secrets of of the Far East and everything else like that. And there's like one passage that's really famous in it uh, that talks about how the islands of, uh, the island of Sudra or something that's east of Malacca has, and it said uh, there's an abundance of pepper and it's that, and it's, they said it's that of higher quality than that of India. So uh, the Sudra, there's like a Sudra Gulf between, Sumatra, the biggest island on the far west of Indonesia, and Java. Right. Which eventually the capital became, or the capital was Jakarta, and then it became Batavia. But, you know, we'll get, yeah, that's so, yeah, that's, that's, that's the real fun part there. So, uh, whenever they went and took all of that stuff over. So, the Dutch eventually got their shit together and they created what was effectively the first stock company, which was the VOC. And the, why this was different than most other stuff, and uh, they leave all this out, by the way, and like obviously in, in education in the West, we don't don't think any anybody was taught this in school about like all their first. Yeah, you've heard of the companies. East India Com- British East India Company, <laughs> right? But not the the one that started it, which was the VOC, effectively, and it's, or at least it started it in the traditionalist capitalist way right so like the british originally the british east india company was a conglomerate of different trading posts that were basically competing against each other for uh shares of the spice trade whereas the voc was a unified conglomerate or effectively at the time syndicate that was state sanctioned and a monopoly uh specifically you know chartered as a monopoly now what made them really special was their stock trading right the ability for your average dutchman to be able to invest in a share. So you had fractional share trading for the first time mm-hmm. uh, where you can invest in like, say like one-tenth of a, of a vessel, right? Like of, of, a, of a voyage. Uh, and you would get a percentage of whatever the profits would be on said voyage, right? It seems very mundane to us now because this has been how capitalism works on stock trading anyway. Uh, but this was the first time ever that this was done. And normally the way it went back in the day a company would be created momentarily for a voyage, specific voyage, to fund a voyage, to go get the goods. Uh, and it was a crapshoot whether or not you get anything out of it. And so the you know the voyage would come back or it wouldn't come back. Then the the profits you either would lose all your money or you get rich. Yeah, or you get rich, or you just make or you break even. And then the company is dissolved. That's the end of it, right? Like they don't continue. There's not like a name of the company. It's not like you know incorporated or anything else like that. The company is dissolved after that, and then you go on to the next venture and find a new a new fleet or, or a new ship or whatever. So the thing with the the trade or the the stock trade that happened with the VOC is that it became a solidified permanent company that people could invest in for multiple different voyages, uh, for you know, well, and, different and stuff. You know what their initial capitalization was? Six million guilders. <laughs> oh yeah it was wasn't it well, it was six million and a half but they yeah uh, 
which translates to about I think I think with inflation I think that said there was about a hundred hundred or so million dollars today. It's yeah a lot. I mean, and the British East India Company by comparison was maybe a tenth of that. Right, and it was all independent things. It wasn't like a conglomerate, you know, stock company. So you had uh, you had this ability for the Dutch to be able to finance uh, these these massive voyages overseas that their competitors like Spain or Portugal or Britain or even France had could not compete with because they didn't have the 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 infrastructure right like the corporate infrastructure. So that put them leaps and bounds above everybody else because the average Dutchman could invest in these voyages, whereas the average Brit or the average Frenchman or you know the average Spaniard couldn't do that in in their in their home countries. Um, and this eventually started a stock market, and so they would you know people would buy these these shares and these things, and they'd send out voyages and blah blah blah. So. Um, what's more though is that this was a direct translation from earlier times. So having shares in st- well, not, it's like it's called like fractional shares wherever they did they had this it was a lead over from um land reclamation so they bonds right they would buy bonds the dutch people would buy bonds on land reclamation so like say there was an area of swamp that needed to be drained out you would buy bonds or you know like and they would that's how you would raise the money to do the draining of the swamp and build the levees and the dikes and everything else like that um, and then you would get a, a share percentage back on the profits of that uh, farmland, right? That would come back, the agrarian element of that. So the Dutch were not foreign to this concept. It just became really corporatized uh, when the VOC hit in 1601. Um, and it really honestly became coined in like 1602. It was like an actual company, but the lead up was from 1600 to 1602. So it was like two years worth of, of buildup, right? Where the books were published and, you know, the whole company was was garnered together. Um, and so at the time, though, we're still talking about Holland being controlled or the United Provinces being controlled by Spain. Um, and they still needed to fund their 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 battles that were happening on land there against the Spanish Empire. Uh, and the only way to do this was to create a unified company uh, where the Dutch people or the Dutch provinces could share in the profits of to then fund their war effort. Um, so the Dutch, uh, the Dutch conglomerate, or the, the 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 provinces, the heads of the provinces got together and they were like, okay, we're doing one company, and it's the monopoly company, it's the VOC, and they appointed seventeen heads, which is the 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 Heron seventeen or whatever, right? That became the the head of the company. Um, so it was not really. It was kind of like a democratic process, I suppose, like at the top, but it's not at the same time. Cause it's, Oli- let's say oligarchic. Yeah, that works. Yeah. Okay, so it's an oligarchic thing that's sanctioned by the government, right? So the government of, of the Netherlands, quote unquote, the government, whatever you would consider that to be a government, if it's controlled by another country, right? Whatever. It's like the rebel government um, effectively said, okay, so this is your charter and you're allowed to do all this stuff because as we know it takes forever to get notes from east india to holland at the time right i think it was like the turnaround time was like two years total uh for for messages to get out there so uh they gave the power of a nation effectively to the voc like you're allowed to make trade you're allowed to broker deals between other foreign governments you're allowed to raise a military you're allowed to raise a navy you're allowed to you know effectively colonize areas uh you're allowed to make war you're allowed to do whatever the hell you want whatever you're up to you just as long as you make profit like that's like the bottom line make profit and you can do whatever you want on god's great earth it doesn't matter and they did a lot of that <laughs> so why indonesia because indonesia is is huge yeah and you don't realize this like the span of indonesia is basically massive it's like pretty much the distance from boston to salt lake city it's huge yeah and the land mass i think is tens of thousands of islands it's like if you take all the islands and add them up, it's two Texases. 
Yeah. And Sumatra uh, is basically Virginia, the Carolinas, and Georgia. And then there's Java, which and, is massive as well. And then there's right, Java is big, but and the other thing you don't realize looking at the map, the two biggest islands are Sumatra in the far west and Borneo, the big fat one in the middle. Yeah. But the most population is on Java, which is this right. slightly, it's a medium-sized island. And it's off because this. it's perfect in the trade routes as far as like the way the trade winds go in that area. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, it's it's like a perfect stop off between all those. And it's also like militarily advantageous. Um, so that's obviously why they, they went there. It, but it was also established as a trade spot already, mm-hmm. which is why the Dutch went there anyway to take over Jakarta. Because why why start from scratch when you can just take something that already exists you know and so the chinese had already been trading there for a long time with the, with the muslims and the you know, indians and everybody else like that it was already still the the trade hub of the far east the dutch just took it um so yeah uh backtracking a little bit so the the first guy um to actually capitalize or, or to do the voyage for uh for the voc and get over there um was a, a captain by the name of uh, Jacob Van Neck or Jacob Van Neck. Um, he was the first successful one to actually come back from that. And I'm pretty sure it was his voyage that turned over a 400% uh, profit margin for the initial investors, which got all the Dutch up in arms. They're like, holy crap, this is a ton of money to be doing this. Um, and because they successfully obviously stole the Portuguese um uh, navigation data they got over there they got the things that they needed they came back and they everybody made a bunch of money so after that it was an all-out race so better better investment than tulips no <laughs> <laughs> well, well okay we'll over the long yeah. term over the long term yeah probably uh well for yeah for a bit of time yeah i but the and we can get into the voc's tulip in- investments uh nah, later. Is, yeah we don't have to no nah, that's just a yeah. everybody, everybody knows about the tulip fiasco because it's like well the, the tulip bubble and all that other fun stuff and then like the crash because that's that's the thing but we get into that later about like what actually because we're talking about the peak the peak really of the voc was in the mid 1600s like they put it was, out by 1650 really uh it was nutmeg oh yeah so the reason why the reason why uh indonesia right so that's what we get to why indonesia why is this such a big deal because the brit i mean why india was already kind of colonized by the portuguese yeah so that was already that was already a thing so the portuguese had already gotten basically all over the coast of india at this time uh and so they didn't really have a place to go now to now to say that the portuguese were still trading with these people in in indonesia and whatnot like these things were not unknown um but and and they were they were figuring this out like the portuguese were figuring out where the sources of these spices come from so at this time in in history uh the three major spices that were being traded were cloves nutmeg and mace and for those who don't know nutmeg and mace come from the same plant now there were three islands in the world that had these spices that was it and they were part of the banda islands which is right north of java so it's like right above there so it was an easy easy you know if, if, if you were basing your uh your your endeavors out of jakarta uh you were right there for the banda islands for these three major spice islands and this, this they, they called them the spice islands so the banda islands are also called the spice islands so these things grow naturally there because of the volcanic ash and also their fun stuff that's like a perfect you know melting pot for, for of, of environmentalism just for these these things so these Wonder, wonderful even temperatures all year oh yeah i think it was, it's, it's like it's high 60s to high 90s year round yeah day and night quite hot <laughs> it gets, it's quite it doesn't get as hot apparently as it does in like america or europe it you know it in can get it can get into the hundreds places, yeah but for the most part it just st- stays at like an even, even nice cool breeze just in the, in the 90s all the time 
unlike ju- unlike java or borneo where it's a fucking bug jungle but <laughs> um but yeah so you had like the perfect the perfect climate for these these spices and they grow naturally on these islands um so these these were like the big money makers so nutmeg uh was used as a meat preserver as we go back to earlier what we were talking about with the the cutting off of of europe from uh the constantinople trade routes and everything else like that and preserving meats and stuff this was one of the big deals for that so nutmeg was a a massive trade commodity not just because it it tastes good or whatever you know uh we were talking about thing earlier we were joking about (laughs) white girls and how all of these spices just are perfectly made for white girls you've got the the nutmeg uh, later, coffee. Yeah, from Indonesia, and then from Ceylon. Yeah, cinnamon. Right. So Ceylon, which is now Sri Lanka, and was you've got you've over. got the cows already in in Holland. Perfect so you've milk. got the yeah. perfect like pumpkin and spice cheeses. Yeah. <laughs> pumpkin spice lattes and tulips. They love flowers. Yeah. So it's like a perfect white girl fall kind of thing. Uh, and that's that's basically what funded the, <laughs> the VOC. And yeah, what 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 powered all of this was we need to get these white girls their drinks. Effectively, uh, more than likely, that's probably what actually happened. Yeah. But uh, and the, the tulip thing was actually that it was just like a status symbol. You just had flowers. And it was really pretty. So as much of dudes buying flowers for their girls, that's what drove the largest uh, economy for the VOC was tulips. So, um, well, for that like one, we don't want to mislead people here. For that one period of like 1636, you're right. That well, that was when it popped. But like right before then, yeah, that was like the big deal. Like uh, the from the from about the 1610s to the 1630s, you had the tulip trade, um, which eventually that bubble popped and it caused a massive uh, catastrophic economic collapse in Holland uh, in 1636. Uh, which and then actually only about 20 years or 14 years after that maintained the. Uh, the predominance of the VOC. And after that, it started kind of like dwindling down in power up until its bankruptcy in 1799. Um, and they, that's when the Dutch government uh, nationalized the VOC. And then the Indonesia became Dutch Indonesia, Dutch, the Dutch Indochina, Dutch East Indies. Because it became a colony at that point as compared to a, a, a economic venture of the VOC. But that's a few hundred years in the future. Let's keep going back to, the, to our, our historical elements Yeah, the glory here. days. Right, yeah, of, of all the colonization and the fun stuff. They had, uh, so after they after they took Java, and that's obviously where we get the, the, the term for coffee, Java, right? Having a cup of Java, right? right? So that's where that comes from. They took they they went over and they they first took uh, Jakarta. That was like their main their main hit point was we need to take a major trade hub and we need to dominate it. And so they took Jakarta uh, and it became Batavia, right? Like the what was it the the it's Latin, a Latin name. word for yeah that yeah for Holland or whatever. And so they were like, we'll call it this. So they uh, they named it that. Uh, and then shortly after that, uh, they took Ceylon, which is Sri Lanka, to max or capitalize on the cinnamon trade right off the coast of uh, of of India. So. The big deal is, though, uh, is that they, they weren't the only ones in the thing, right? They had to compete still against uh, fledgling British companies, and they had to compete still against massive Portuguese influence and still uh, Islamic influence as well in the area. And the so, Chinese. And the Chinese, but, yeah. But uh, the Chinese weren't as not, not the Chinese government, but there was yeah. a big Chinese immigrant population in all these areas. Right, because they had been trading for hundreds of years, if not longer than that at this point. So the big deal, though, um, first and foremost, was taking out their their major rivals, which was the Portuguese. And so in uh, the Banda Islands, which are the Spice Islands, they had been trading with the Portuguese for at this point in time over 100 years. So they had pretty well established. The Banda Ease uh, people had. 
been yeah. trading with the Portuguese. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah, the, Ban- the Bandese people have been trading uh, with the Portuguese for over 100 years at this point, so they have a very well-established relationship with them, except it wasn't really that good. So the reason why the, ban- the people of Banda were so willing to initially trade with the Dutch when the Dutch first got there is because the Dutch were multicultural and they were cool with the Banda having their native religions, right? As compared to the Portuguese who were like, Christ now. And so they were, the Portuguese were really about um, more so than trading with people, forcing them to convert to Christianity. And so they were like, okay, yeah, we'll trade with you, but you also have to believe in God. And so the Banda were like, Ugh. it was ethical colonialism. It, uh, you could call it that. <laughs> so the Banda were like, like we're going to take uh, your shit and we're going to give you Jesus. Right. And that was kind of the deal. They, but they were really forceful about the Jesus part. And the natives were not really cool with that. So when, as soon as the Dutch were like, yeah, we don't care what the hell you worship. You could like, you know, sacrifice goats. We don't care. Just give us the spice. And they're like, okay, cool. So you're going to give us money and then not fuck with us. Is so that, the, cap, the capitalist model. Right. Now, and the that's go- godless. Originally. Uh, and that's originally the, the model of the King VOC. Dollar. Right. Or King Gilder. King Gilder at the time. Yeah, for sure. So the original guy uh, we talked about earlier, um, Van Linschoten, right? Jan Van Linschoten, he his idea was we need to go and peacefully trade with these native peoples all over the place, right? And then just be chill and just have mutual trade that's beneficial for everybody and it's all cool. Uh, and they were talking about, you know, trading silks, you know, they, they trade everything in the area. Silks, silver, spices, uh, weapons. You know, slaves. Slaves, that was a thing. All kinds of stuff that you would imagine to trade out there. They were trading it all and they were trying to do it as, as ethical as possible. Yes, yeah, so you're ethically sourced slaves and silver. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so the voc were initially into ethically sourced products right so again this goes into our our white girl fall element, i'm really right? seeing a lot of similarities here oh, yeah. with it's <laughs> so iberians but, being religious fanatics right dutch being you know godless capitalists and it's just it's just like modern day yeah, right it, the stock companies all of it <laughs> <laughs> big big bubbles and crashes based on on future speculation so that was a big thing about in, in 1636 is that the the tulip bubble actually popped because of futures trading and speculation, speculative trading, uh, which we see today. Wow. You know. Oh, right. So I'm going to buy a put option on the tulips. Yeah. Hoping that somebody's going to make profit <laughs> on it later. And or it, that I bet that the tulip trade will crash. Here's my 10 guilders. Oh, no, I kept going up. Oh, well, I lost. Right. So people will usually bet on the longs of it going up. And they kept going up and up and up and up and up. And so unfortunately, the bubble popped in 36 and it crashed the economy of, of Holland. But so uh, whenever they first got to to Indonesia, uh, they were trading peaceably with the natives there, specifically in Banda, because they knew that those were the major spice islands. So they wanted to go direct to the source rather than just, you know, trading and all this other stuff. So they went direct to the source uh, and they were getting a one up on the Portuguese. So this happened for quite some time, actually, as far as trading was concerned. Now, what happened uh, eventually was that the markets in Indonesia started to get oversaturated. And what that does is that obviously, dry, it's competition, right? Competition drives down the price a lot of times. So, and it also it also can drive prices up. So in Indonesia itself, the spice trade was actually going up as far as commodity sales were concerned. So like a unit of, uh, say, nutmeg was increased in, in sales price because of competition in Indonesia. But because there was so much European competition bringing it back to Europe, uh, it drove the prices in Europe down. So the price to buy it in Indonesia was becoming higher and the price to sell it mm, in Europe was becoming yeah. lower. So the only way to fix this that the VOC thought Is was... to kill all the British. Right, monopoly time. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, at the Portuguese, 
Portuguese at the time too. Right? So like, it's okay. So we got to, we got to dominate this effectively what the VOC said is like we need to, to corner the market and dominate this shit. Otherwise we're not gonna be able to make a massive profit, right? Capitalism is what we're talking about today. So, so their, their main thought though, is that, okay, they need to corner specifically the spice islands. There's only three islands still at this point in time in the whole world that does. And we got to realize that uh, going back to, to broad colonialism real quick, the reason why a lot of colonial powers focused heavily on uh, at, at, at equatorial areas, right? Like Africa, the Caribbean, places like that is because it could actually uh, be utilized to have these plants thrive in. So they would export uh, bulbs and all these other pla- like plants from it, right? From cinnamons and from nutmeg and everything else. That's why it grows all over the world else now. Same thing with sugar and all these other things. So, or and coffee. Coffee, right. right. So they would- Rubber. Yeah, all of that. So they would go and take slaves. this to other colonies. The, well, they'd use the slaves to make the plantations <laughs> so they can grow all this stuff for cheap, right? Um, and we'll get into the programs of that later that the VOC implemented, uh, specifically in Banda. And it was actually right about there. So um, they they made a, a pogrom, effectively, with the Bandanese. And they were like, hey, look, uh, we realize that you're trading with the Portuguese, too. Uh, this is, like, screwing up our profit margins. So you need to, like, stop. So you need Wait, to st- a pogrom? Well, you know, like, like a, like a, like a, it was like an edict that they, that they, Delivered upon these people. Oh, it you wasn't mean an ukaz. Yeah, because it wasn't You're really using these Slavic words. Uh, <laughs> they, they weren't really like pogrom means it, when you kill all the Jews in your neighborhood. Well, okay, that's what like. Well, I thought a pogrom was just like. Is it not just an edict? Where no, they, that's an ukaz. Oh, wait, is pogrom specifically about killing Jews? Yeah, really? Yeah. Oh, I thought it was just like an edict that was for killing Jews. Like we issued an edict for killing no, Jews. No, just called pogrom. Yeah. Uh, I'm not the linguist here. But it's so not, yeah. it's not, no, you mean an ukaz. Right. So an eat, yeah, or in English. A fatwa. A fa- yeah, a fa- <laughs> there we go, a fatwa, yeah, so there's let's that. Use, let's use regionally and geographically correct terms here. Right, so, okay, in Indonesia, it would have been a fatwa, right? <laughs> and they issued this 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 uh, this edict to the to the Bananese, and they were like, look, um, you know, effectively an ultimatum. Like, you can either, actually, they didn't, they didn't offer the ultimatum yet. They just said, hey, stop trading with the Portuguese. You can't, you can't do that anymore, no more. And so the natives, uh, as they tend to do in colonial times, they would sign a document that they can't read and they didn't really care. And so behind the Dutch's back, they would still trade with the Portuguese. Well, I mean, and I even question, I mean, could they tell the difference? Right. Like could white they, like, European guy shows up. I would say that the, with language, ru- the language barrier was probably the, the, hey, the you, you can't tell. You can't tell the difference between somebody speaking Malay and, and, and uh, I don't know, uh, Australian Aborigine. Like, I, uh, <laughs> like, like. You can't, I mean, right. you so, can't tell, most Europeans can't tell the difference between, you know, Russian to and be Polish. Fair, though, Dutch sounds way sillier than Portuguese. <laughs> yeah, this is, well, and that's saying something. You know, uh, <laughs> that is saying something. <laughs> so, like, okay. Spanish. <laughs> Spanish makes sense, right? Yeah, but like Portuguese and Dutch are both two bonkers languages. And, and the poor Bandanese people had to deal with both of these at the same time. Uh, so I can imagine they'd be confused as to to which I don't know a guy in with a ruffled collar shows up and he's white and has a beard right. and says give me your nutmeg because they all had they all sported goatees they all had the white puff collars of the 1600s right so they kind of all did look the same and they all had the same basic ship design so it you're basically trading one European for the other and to them they didn't really care so and they didn't and that's kind of the deal is so they kept trading with the Portuguese on and off. Um, and the whole time, obviously, the, the Dutch and the Portuguese at this point in time were, were starting to have military And the Dutch conflicts. were like, hey, you're going behind our backs. Yeah. <laughs> you're working with the Portuguese. <laughs> <laughs> it's, and that's 
kind of how they approach them uh, at one point in time. And so after after uh, a few of these deals had gone through and the Dutch were like, oh, yeah, we don't really have a monopoly on these islands. Hey, what's the deal? So they went to the, the tribal leaders and they're like, look, stop, stop trading with the Portuguese. We're done with this crap. Like, you need to stop it. Like, this is bullshit. You signed a treaty with us. And the Bananese were like, look, these are our islands. Fuck you. And so they attacked. They just blatantly they attacked the Dutch and they killed about 47 Dutchmen. The Dutch didn't take too kindly to this, and this was under the uh, the leadership of who what, who would become the most famous, infamous governor general of the Dutch East Indies, which was uh, Jan Koen or Koen Koen, not a Jew, not a Jew. Not no, we we looked this up. We yeah. saw I I saw this too. I saw Cohen C O E N. I'm like, yeah, could this be? Right. I looked at a picture of him, and I'm he looks, you know, he looks like. He like has the same face. I'm like, that's not a Jew. And I I looked up the name, and it's no, it's it's not Cohen. It's he not, definitely has the same sadism. It's not the Dutch reflex for Cohen. It's German Kuhn. Right. So C O E N is compared to C O H E N. Yeah. So he's not a Jew. He's just a ruthless dude. So he became the most famous uh, Dutch East Indies Governor General. And because of an act, one of these acts specifically, uh, he did a lot of things where he ran off a bunch of the British by torturing them and everything else like that. So they, he, at, at this point, the 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 banded what we should be it, it is kind of this is the banded genocide was the main catalyst for the Dutch to go full ass wild and just take this place by force, uh, the entirety of Indonesia. And so what happened is after they kill after the the Bandanese killed forty seven Dutchmen or whatever, the Dutch were like, all right, that's the end of you entirely. Um, and Cohen came up with this idea of uh, effectively something we can relate to today in the Western world, which is uh, total demographic replacement. Um, and so the idea was to liquidate the Bandanese Islands, the Banda Islands of the native population, the Bandanese, which were a hostile to profit population mm-hmm. right or and so they they hired Money making haters right exactly they weren't into being exploited so that had to, they had to go <laughs> so uh what cohen so we'll did do some uh some folk or mortaring <laughs> see now we can use use so, no i mean i'm not i i don't know shit about dutch i'm just gonna make things up and i'll, I'll probably be right about how to say it <laughs> <laughs> well yeah i guess it, it just sounds bonkers anyway so so at the time though holland and this is uh they had they had the only outlet to japan from europe at this time as well so they had a um they had a they lived on a cuck island uh in the bay of nagasaki which was called um dejima or something right because the the various european like the portuguese and the dutch and had gotten to japan and had been trading with them a little bit and bringing them a little bit of jesus but it was portuguese again with their religion that pissed the the japanese off yo you need to cut this out get the fuck out they were mad about christianity like hardcore the shogunate was mad as hell about christianity and that was the big deal was portugal and because the dutch weren't pushing christianity they were allowed to continue trade in nagasaki it makes a lot of sense right and so uh but they weren't allowed to set foot on mainland japan and i know all the weebs are going to be mad listening to this like it's called dejiman jishing or whatever the hell else it's just dejiman on whatever some cuck island doesn't matter so they had to live on that and they traded with the japanese now they also had access to the shogunate's power because of this and they used that power to uh we'll say liquidate the population on uh banda by hiring yon cohen uh hired a bunch of samurai uh they could have also been um 
uh, Ronin, right? Like, like, uh, oh, yeah, like Masterless Samurai or whatever. Yeah. So, you hired a bunch of these dudes to come and put the population to the sword. So, the average population or the estimated population of the islands at the time of the Banda Islands was 15,000 natives. The Japanese literally pun intended, cut that down to size by 14,000. So they killed 14,000 many? How many Japs did they hire? I'm not sure. I think it was like somewhere around 600 or something. Okay, so... It was an insignificant amount compared to the actual population. We're looking at 600 out of 14,000 is... Was that a little over 20 kills per man? Minimum. (laughs) So you're... It's a massive... Because 600 times 20 is... 12,000 yeah so minimum yeah so you have a lot like they're they're killing like a lot like they are bathing in blood effectively like and the people still remember this uh there was like i saw a documentary about this specifically where like the the tribal leaders that are technically still the tribal leaders of banda which are clearly not same genetic population um weep to this day as they remember this this genocide they were like really mad that cohen did this because it was like i mean to be fair you they genocided a whole bunch of people. Um, I read in, in this book on uh, the Dutch East Indies that Cohen said that Japs were a, about as good as European troops. Right. You know, they're just a pretty, you know, high compliment, especially for back then. Yeah. You yeah. know, so the Japanese came in there. They wiped everybody the hell out and then they went home. <laughs> they were just there for bloodshed. Uh, and then so what happened? So you think of like white girls going to Bali in Indonesia today. Yeah. Back then it was like, hey, you want to get on a boat and like come and kill 20 people with a sword? And yeah, the and Jap- get paid. And the Japanese did it <laughs> <laughs> lovingly. Um, and so because there was also obviously Japanese traders that were down in those areas as well, too, because there was only there's only two countries technically. So after Japan became isolated, everybody thinks that the Dutch are the only ones that had access to it. The uh, Chinese did, too. Um, but that doesn't really only white people right exactly the only, only white people people <laughs> oh so yeah the uh the only people that were there were the dutch uh, as compared to the chinese as well so uh after this massive genocide of fourteen thousand of of the population uh the remaining thousand or so that were were left uh were basically put into indentured servitude or straight up slavery um and they weren't actually able to remain most of them weren't weren't kept on the island a lot of them were shipped off for slavery in other parts of uh indonesia and and east east china and everything else and again not sold to white people for all those liberals listening to our uh cast no they were sold to asians because the asians were buying them because the asians were involved in the slave trade more so than we ever were yeah it was it was bali i think that was the main center, like the Indonesians on Bali were the the, chi- the chief slave traders throughout the whole region through this this period. And now you and enjoy the, it for and Instagram. The Dutch were were cool with that as long as these Balians like didn't raid for slaves on Dutch controlled land. Right, exactly. Because again, they needed their populations for plantations. That was the big deal. So they bought slaves also. And so they repopulated uh the Banda Islands, the Spice Islands, um, with mostly uh slaves from Java. In the island of Java, uh, and so they this this program that they did here is that they they had a racial replacement, a demographic replacement program specifically to profit off of, right? So they would they the lands the, the lands that they that they desired were rich for agrarian exploitation, right? For growing of of product, um, except the population was hostile to exploitation for profit of their native lands. So the idea was to replace that 
uh, hostile population with a friendly slave population that they could then use to, you know, that they, they controlled so they would manage the, the, uh, the, the, uh, the plantations and then the company would profit off of. There's a lot of that happening now in the West, we see, with a lot of racial demographic replacement happening on a corporate level based on this whole idea of you have agrarian land, but the population is antithetical to being exploited. So wait, are you saying that our current elites are using the same economic policies as the racist, imperialist, Jew-hating imperialists of the past used? Yeah, but on us. (laughs) Exactly that. I mean, that's not... Yeah, you you, uh, you laugh, but... It's, yeah, it's true. It, no, it yeah. is. It's like it's not. It actually isn't a laughing matter. It's just that one of those things that if uh, hey, when you it, think it, about it, it that way, it's kind of funny. Yeah, but it is true. I mean, well, funny and like a laugh, laugh, ha ha. I, I don't know. I don't know how else to cope kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, you're right. It's one yeah. of those those it, laughs that you do when because you're you're in a it's like it's like a fear laugh. Right. So the problem is, though, is that on a very serious note that the Western powers currently the Jewish elite of the Western world are utilizing a demographic replacement tactic that was pioneered by the VOC in the 1600s uh for maximum profit we're talking about total market stuff well let's here. let's not credit the voc let's not credit the dutch with coming up with this well, i feel like this is a every it's a it's an obvious thing and it's been going on since for all time more than likely yeah it's just this is a really i mean how do you think the romans turned france into a profitable like womp air? womp <laughs> <laughs> now the thing is though this was this was more so like this is this is the, the reason why this is unique though is that it is an instance specifically for capitalistic corporate gain Right, like it is, it is a corporate action as compared to a civilizational action. Oh, okay, right? that's that's what really makes it different here. This is a private enterprise genocide. Right, as compared to you know, okay, our civilization is taking over your civilization, and we're going to replace your civilization with ours. Right, like that's like the normal way of of doing it. This is totally different. This is entire. This is like where there's no like the Dutch didn't even take over the Banda Islands after this. Like they, you know, the Dutch don't own that today. They don't speak. They don't no, they, speak Dutch. No, they, uh, it wasn't at this time, but later in Dutch colon- colonial history, it was in the 1800s. They, a religious leader in Holland, wanted to move his people all to to Java, right, and set up a colony there for Dutch people. And the Dutch government was like, or the Dutch government was like, "No, you can't do that, yeah, <laughs> uh, because you'll fuck with the natives or whatever, right." And so he moved to Michigan. Wow. Yeah. All right. Well, that's a different place to go. <laughs> But it's that's the thing. It's like it's it wasn't even about colonialism. It was about corporatism. Well, the sad thing about that incident is that you probably would still have a Dutch, you would still have like a Dutch population in Java right now. Right. But by moving to Michigan, you erased yourself by becoming you know Anglo's. Right. You assimilated into a, into a larger, more established civilization as compared to going colonizing one that was weak at the time. Right. But that's the thing. Is like they weren't in it for that. That's the problem with the VOC in, in that sense. Is that it was totally about capitalism. It had nothing to do. So with, you know, contrast with that with you know, like the Dutch colonization of South Africa, where it was like a mass movement. And uh, and well, that was of land. that wasn't initially the thing either. So that that uh, we can well, actually, I'm sure it wasn't. I'm, yeah. I, I, but they did. They they did move there in droves. And the reason why they did it in droves, and we can actually talk about that too, because that's part of this. So Cape Town was founded as a halfway point between Europe and the East Indies for the Dutch. Uh, the Dutch initially founded oh, Cape Town. Yeah, that was just like the the, the natural stop off point. So they they founded Cape Town or the Cape of Good Hope, right? Um, and I can't remember exactly when they did this. It was sometime in the 1600s they yeah. did this. Um, but they they founded that, and eventually, because they just they just kind of did it as a quick stop off. There actually wasn't any commerce that was happening in Cape Town until much later. Not much later, but decently later, um, when they started to have 
uh, a necessity for a resupply of the ships. So mm-hmm. they needed uh, wood, they needed food, they needed all these types of things that you would need, right, for resupplying ships and trade. Um, so they started to ship the what became the Boer farmers down there. Uh, and so the VOC itself, not not the Dutch government at this time, we're talking still the still the V. We're still in the VOC. The VOC owns everything outside of Holland that is Dutch, right? Um, and so Cape Town is owned by the VOC. All trade that happened in Cape Town was VOC controlled. So they, they didn't own New York, did they? They did. Oh, really? Yeah, that was taken. Or sorry, New, New Amsterdam. New Amsterdam, right. That was taken, because that, that was part of the Dutch West Indies Company. Um, that was still part of that whole thing. So the the, the British eventually took that. There was, a, there was a war that happened between the British and the, and the Dutch uh, where the British gave up the Spice Islands uh, stuff, like the, anything they had in uh, oh, they Indonesia. Renou- they renounced their claims. Yeah, they renounced claims in Indonesia uh, and, and traded it off so the Dutch renounced claims in North America. I don't really know who won out on that one. <laughs> But so to Cape Town or whatever, they started importing Dutch settlers down there to farm uh, supplies for the ships. And they were banned from trading within Africa. So they weren't allowed to trade with native tribes or anybody else like that. They were exclusively allowed to trade with the VOC that were coming to the port of Cape mm. Town, um, which caused like that kind of thing. Now, they did use slaves there as well. And that kind of caused like another thing. And they had more immigration. Yada, yada. Uh, just a side point on South Africa. The Dutch were in South Africa before the Zulus. Yes. Yes, Which is they crazy. Were. Yeah, they were. To think about they the Dutch. The Dutch were the real pioneers. Like, like Afrikaners it, are actually more native to South Africa than, than any blacks. Your Ugabuga, well, most blacks. Your Ugabuga proper Bantu blacks. Right. The only ones that weren't were uh, like your pygmy races that were there. What's the what's that one? No, no, you're not pygmies. They're um, uh, the capoids in the old terminology. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I thought they, there were some pygmy on the west part of it there's like pygmy groupings i forgot what there they might were. be some maybe there are pygmies but too there was sure. much that were getting genocided by the zulus when the zulus were migrating into that east area right so the thing is though is that before all that happened was and like again a lot of the blacks that did get down there were slaves that were brought in by the voc they weren't actually native to the area either um so you had basically the the some of the oldest people that settled in south africa were dutch so what i'm hearing is like the dutch empire was basically just white people going around the world and then playing different races off against each other and profiting. Yeah, that was that was the VOC. <laughs> and they did it with extreme prejudice, like even against our our own peoples in Europe, right? So like we haven't even touched on the atrocities they committed against the English. <laughs> like we haven't even got to that part yet. And that happens the whole time through this, which is why it sparked wars because like, the British and the, and the Dutch had trade agreements, right? Because they had to like ally against the French and the Spanish and everything else like that. But at the same time, the VOC didn't operate as the Dutch government. So the VOC could commit atrocities against the English, but it didn't count as the Dutch government doing it. So it didn't break treaties. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Cohen, right after after taking Banda I and Kuhn, replacing Kuhn, it was pronounced like that. We'll say Kuhn. So Kuhn, after taking uh, taking Banda exclusively as a monopoly for the VOC and ge- and racially replacing the entire population with a slave population, uh, and then raping the island of any natural foliage except for nutmeg, um, and created nutmeg plantations as far as the eye can see. Uh, they uh, started setting about getting rid of their competition, which at the time, because Portugal at this time was kind of receding in their in their popularity around the world as far as they, they had their heyday. So Spain and, and Spain and Portugal's heyday um, of colonialism was affected the 1500s. The Dutch was right. the 1600s and the British was the 17 and 1800s. Right. Um, 
with transition periods, obviously, in between these things. So the the Portuguese weren't exactly the biggest issue at the time or anymore towards the end of this. It became the British. The British started really getting into it because it started copying the models. The British East India Company started to copy the mon- the monopoly models of the VOC. Uh, and so they started getting into, uh, you know, like the, the stock market trading and everything else like that. And some of the first forays actually into stock market trading for London and Paris was the tulips, actually. Uh, so they were trading... Uh, tulip futures and stuff in london and and paris as well um so they started getting into that and they're like oh crap this actually works really well to just get regular people to buy into these ventures and voyages or whatever and it saves us a lot of money they started buying insurance and stuff like insurance companies started popping up and with with less and less risk on the side of like your dutch citizens or your dust investors you can invest more money with less risk right so they were able to invest ungodly amounts of money in holland uh for the voc which put them at a massive advantage over the spanish and over the english and over the french and anybody else that was in the time being um at the peak of the voc their fleet ranged at around 1700 ships which if you look at in retrospect that is fucking crazy like that is an ungodly amount of ships that and it was it was bigger than the british navy right yeah well i mean offhand do you know what was the spanish armada I uh, I don't off the top of my head. Hundreds, but I, I, yeah, but it was hundreds not, of ships, not that big. but it wasn't anywhere near like over a, uh, nearly two thousand, right? Like that's the thing with like the VOC, and this is the, the VOC is a private company, right? We're talking about a private company, not even a nation. Like these ships weren't Dutch, right? They weren't Netherlands ships; they were VOC ships specifically. Um, and so that company, and this is for ret- for 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 just comparison's sake to juxtapose this between modern times and and then, uh, the VOC at the height of its at the height of its empire around the 1730s, right, was valued at somewhere between 6.8 and 7.3 trillion U.S. dollars today, and and that's like yeah, I mean, for uh, all caveats about yeah. Uh, trying to convert money over time yeah you know but still like a shit ton of money right and even but even then it's still to this day the largest company that has ever existed monetarily um you 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 take uh apple google and microsoft today combine the three and the voc was still at the height of its three times the worth of those companies today combined that's insanity like no one has ever touched that kind of worth yet in in the world. Like it just hasn't happened again. Like it is still the number, and it, and it, it, it craps on the fucking on the, on the British East India Company's profits. Like just doesn't even hold a candle. In the, in oh, the wind. you brought some tea to Boston. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> we'll throw it in the drink. <laughs> <laughs> and even India being considered the crown of the British jewel in the 1800s when they nationalized that entire um, thing. You know. <laughs> oh wait. Uh, 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 being the jewel in the british crown no, sorry thank, yeah, yeah i said you. that backwards thank yeah you. i had to correct myself sorry <laughs> i got i got i, I uh, tongue-tied so it indeed, doesn't matter all these all these expressions are stupid i right, mean yeah so oh, the, yeah. the crown the, the jewel in the british crown though was considered india at the height of the british raj and even at that point in time it still didn't come anywhere near close to the spice and tulip trade of the voc i can't see the for the trees for the forest yeah <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I love I love euphemisms. It's like beating around Robin Hood. No, it's barn. like I mean nobody knows anything about nature anymore, so you might as well just mix everything oh, up. Oh god, that's the most uh, the grass thing. Is, the grass is yellower on the other side. Like whatever. <laughs> <laughs> they actually have grass on the other side. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> stupid and irrelevant comments. Oh well, but so yeah, at, at the at the at the height of this empire, they had more money than God, effectively, and so they used all of their uh, their ports and whatnot around. Specifically, Cape Town was one of the biggest ones. And as you guys, I'm assuming, can understand through history that a lot of these places were taken by the British over time. 
Um, so over the years, uh, you had the major crash in the th- in thirty six that. Then I know we're, we're usually only talking about like we're talking about the VOC. The VOC had world domination hegemony for about fifty years, uh, where it was the number one trade company. It was the number one, effectively the number one empire in the world for about fifty years, and it wasn't even a nation; it was a company, right? Yeah. So towards the uh, towards the end of that, Kuhn was the guy who who established a lot of these policies that that skyrocketed the profits of uh, the, the VOC in Indonesia through his his uh, genocidal policies and everything else like that. And we're just gonna say that as like an objective element. It's just because it was it was an object, you know it was a genocidal policy, but you know whatever however that goes. Um, and beyond that, uh, you had you had a lot of not a lot of colonization, but a lot of monetary colonization. They found Australia and the coast of that and everything else like that. So, um, or the Dutch discovered Australia, right, the Dutch discovered yeah. Australia. It wasn't the English. Uh, and so later on though, we, we, and cause we're spanning the, we're at the course of about 200 years here in this, this discussion. So we're going to jump around a little bit, uh, towards the end of the VOC, eventually the VOC went bankrupt, uh, and they had lined up papers cause they, they saw what was happening in France, uh, towards the Napoleonic age. Right. Mm-hmm. So about, 1797 1798 uh the they kind of started to have these programs put in place where if if holland was taken by france england would get their their possessions because uh, they were still in alliance with with england and so at about 17 about 1788 they nationalized the voc the dutch 98 Oh yeah, sorry, 1798. Sorry, 1798. They they nationalized uh, the the Dutch East India Company for Holland itself, and then in 1799, the um, the charter actually ran out, and they declared bankruptcy in about the same year. And so that was technically the real end of the VOC. The VOC died in 1799, but that's not the end of the Dutch East Indies, right? We still see it continue beyond World War II. Um, as far as a colony is concerned. So this is the transition between the VOC capitalist hegemony and into Dutch colonialism was 1799. Um, But technically a little bit after that, because when uh, Holland was taken over by France, uh, all that was dissolved and, and England for an interim period of time took over uh, the, the Indies, right? The East Indies. And they took over the spice trades. Right. Because Holland was, under French control. Right. And so they couldn't do any of that trade. And uh, let me just interject here. So the climate in the Indies is absolutely horrible for the white man. And (laughs) yeah, apparently a lot of people just died in the first few months of getting to Batavia. And just getting there, just getting there. The just getting there. But like once you were there, you were just going to die. Nightmare (laughs) of it being hot and the bugs sultry. Yeah. So I I have some experience living over in in Southeast Asia and it's even with modern technology, it is a nightmare with AC and everything else like that. Your walls still sweat. There's still spiders the size of dinner plates. There's still bugs everywhere. There's centipedes, like like everything crawls you crawl you know it's disgusting oh and it's worse than that let's let's just have a little bit we're talking about also ringworm will just develop on human bodies out in these conditions because everything is so moist you can't get dry and imagine this when your uniforms are all wool you're wearing powdered wigs and stuff like that right you don't have ac it doesn't exist your your shelter's your windows don't work for shit right like none of this happens and you have to live in these conditions let me just pull up here are a couple of sections of this book that talk about how they dealt with this. 
because I, I found this amusing. So this is from the Vecchi book, <laughs> the, the story of the Dutch in the East Indies, talking about the early 1600s in Batavia, uh, Jakarta. The gentlemen had other means of protecting their health. They started the day by drinking a fair-sized glass of gin on an empty stomach. Our nation must drink or die, wrote Kuhn in 1619. <laughs> he's, <laughs> this, he's a man of a lot of quotes, actually. The same medicine was taken frequently during the day. It is no wonder that the distilling of Arak spirits has been called the principal industry of Batavia. Quote, our men were hugging each other and blessing themselves that they had come to such a glorious place for punch, wrote the British captain Woods Rogers at the beginning of the 18th century. Another preventative was smoking. The Batavian smoked from the moment he rose till he tumbled again into his four-poster, heavy with alcohol and sleep. These were the golden days when good Dutch cigars were sold for a thousand for three dollars uh, at a thousand for three dollars, and even Havana's cost only ten dollars for a thousand. I'm imagining like silver dollars. Yeah, so that's a lot of money. But that's like a a big fat copper penny is one cigar. Effectively. Yeah. Yeah. But the Batavians preferred their pipes and smoked them when they attended funerals and when they rode in parade and, of course, when sitting during the evening in front of their houses, enjoying the fresh, quote, fresh air from the canals. As a quick interjection, Dutch are still known for their clay pipes to this day for tobacco. Why clay? That's Because it doesn't rot in the Indies? I'm not sure if that's the reason why, but that is one of the most famous things that they make is a very elongated stem on a clay pipe, and it's all one solid piece. Yeah. Um, and so the Dutch are famous for that. You can still buy them, and like you can still buy them like that. It's like traditional clay pipes for tobacco. But then this, this goes on to some of the other uh, things about like the life in Batavia. The company's servants worked like slaves, especially during the 17th century. <laughs> womp, womp. <laughs> the founding of an empire is no easy job. History shows that in the Dutch East Indies, for 10 generations, men toiled, suffered, and died, died by the thousands before the empire really began to take shape. The company's clerks, a few hundred ill-paid, badly nourished, fever-stricken young men, rose at 5.30 a.m., started work at 6 a.m., and continued at their writing desks until 6 p.m. with a short interruption of 30 minutes for breakfast and a pause of two hours for dinner. That's some serious bureaucracy. So, yeah, they were... Yeah, cranking out the the spreadsheets oh, day, yeah. day and night, and the military while, while uh, downing gin and smoking <laughs> prodigiously. So basically, you're modern corpo. <laughs> yeah, basically, yeah, you got the. Uh, but you don't get to smoke or drink in your office. Which what do you sucks. well? What do you, what do they smoke now? That those uh, electrical things. Oh, your your jewels. Your yes, your the jewels. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's yeah, but you don't get gin in your office either, though, which sucks. So, you know, trade offs, I suppose. Yeah, well, yeah. you get it in our office. You get, yeah, in our offices, you get gin and, and tobacco. It doesn't matter. But um, in, uh, in the offices of a normal corporation, uh, you don't get anything fun, and you just have to work all day, which sucks. So, uh, but also back on, on Cohn's uh, quotes or whatever, I, when he started to take over and, and become governor general and everything else like that, he had a very famous quote that, that you reminded me of by, by quoting him, uh, where is, there is no trade without war, and there is no war without trade. Uh, and he used that as his mantra when he went and, you know, flayed British sailors alive and stuff, <laughs> stuff like that. Oosh. <laughs> yeah. Um, so they, they, they committed uh, 
a lot of like almost like all the atrocities like that we think of it wasn't really committed against the actual natives like they just killed them wholesale like they didn't just you know they didn't sit there and like torture them right uh the torturing was reserved for other europeans unfortunately uh when it came to that kind of thing so yeah i know brother war kind yeah. of stuff so the because again they weren't really trying to send a message to the natives they just need to get rid of them uh, they needed to send a message to the other empires that you shouldn't come here. And the way to do that was to brutalize, uh, specifically British sailors was a big one. I mean, obviously, I'm sure they did it to the Portuguese and Spanish and whoever else came by there. Um, but the big ones that took the brunt of it were the Brits. Uh, the Brits really got ran out of, of Indonesia uh, hard by by the Dutch. Uh, so much so that we were talking about the, the, the slight war earlier uh, that that separated in, like, you know, the, the East Indies from the West Indies and where... Uh, the Dutch lost control of, of uh, New Amsterdam. Uh, which oh, became and, New and their possessions in the Caribbean. Right, yeah, they lost... The West Indies. Well, they didn't lose all the, the Caribbean possessions, just in North America. Ah. Uh, that was like the, the first concession. They, there, was a, a, there was a series of wars, obviously, over the span of a few hundred years where they did that. They lost all their possessions at that point in time, I think, uh, in the War of 1780 uh, with England. So, Dutch and... Uh, Holland and England oh, fought right, the, a war... The uh, American Revolution. Right. Yeah. So that big nonsense right then and there at the end, at the end of that, they fought uh, England and Holland fought a war in like the 1780s, 1770s, or whatever, uh, which basically crippled the the VOC. That was like the big finale because they were getting they were getting wrecked uh, on all sides, right, by the different powers of Europe, uh, Spain, England, everybody else. They couldn't they couldn't keep it up. And so eventually they went bankrupt and, and they had to be nationalized. Um, and then eventually that culminated in, in France's occupation of Holland. So, uh, the thing is, though, is that it, they did kind of implement, the VOC implemented this, this uh, mantra of total war, and they were allowed to under their charter, right? They, they, and it didn't truly affect, they, I say that with quotations around it, truly affect the trade agreements between England and, and Holland, because it kind of did. You can't really, like, Well, yeah, it's like today, yeah. uh, uh, volunteers in Ukraine who are, you know, really quite obviously american and british trained troops right mercenaries <laughs> just uh volunteering yeah i mean it's the same oh yeah we're not actually involved but but if, if you kill too many of these we're gonna get all mad and upset right so um but yeah there was a few instances of uh of forts uh being because there was specifically around the spice islands that was the major contention point for for cone or cone and so there was a there was a british fort uh, with a, I forgot who the the captain of it, of the uh, the fort and, and ship was or whatever, but they they brutalized the entire crew. Like there was a, it was a massacre. Like not even in any, there was nothing civil about it at all. Like uh, it was literal torture, like torture, torture, like something you would think of like medieval torture kind of stuff, like where you were like you know putting people in like Iron I mean, but these British shit. are always like claiming. No, like I, weird tortures I, to justify I their wars. Don't disagree, but this was one of the times where they Is weren't, that? they didn't actually use this to justify a war. This was just, and this wasn't just coming from the British. This was coming from the Dutch, like their records. Uh, like they recorded that they did this. They were like, we did this and they publicized it. And they're like, you come back here and we'll do it again. And the Brits were like, uh, crap, probably shouldn't go back there. Because they didn't, at the time, the Brits didn't have the ability to fight the Dutch Navy. There was, there was no competition, right? The VOC had, their Navy was bigger than both the Spanish and the, and the British combined. And you couldn't fight that, so they kind of had to take the take it right. They were like, "Shit, uh, let's just let's just not <laughs> not not send more more sons of England to, to their death right. for no reason." But, but then Holland found itself in the awkward position of losing control of their home country, right? And that obviously turned the tides a lot uh, over over the course of the next century or so. Um, so the the 
things that I that kind of break out of this though. So like let's let's move on though. So the VOC obviously we know that it had its heyday in the 1600s and then it kind of petered out uh, and then was was totally uh, absor- uh, you know dissolved uh, and, and declared bankruptcy and nationalized and everything else by 1799. So right about in the Napoleonic era. After that though, we have uh, England taking control of Indonesia for a few years. Not right. Too they long. sent they sent a the Dutch sent a guy Herman Willem Dandels to implement more Napoleonic type reforms mm. in Indonesia. And he had some success, but then it was turned over to the British also right. briefly during uh, the Napoleonic Wars. Yeah. And according, you know, according to the treaties after Waterloo, like Holland got there as a price for the Dutch fighting at Waterloo, the Dutch got ba- got their colonies back. Now, here's another fun thing. If we're going to slip uh, some Jewish history into this as well, I'm talking about some other Cohen's. Uh, the whole Waterloo uh, issue with stock markets and whatnot in London. I saw that th- that uh, Goebbels movie. I know what you're, talk- <laughs> what you're about to say. Right. So that ties into a lot of this uh, that we're talking about stock markets. The, the Rothschilds, else. I think it's called. Yeah. yeah it's, oh, wow. Really? Is that in there? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, the, the Rothschilds uh, played uh, the British stock markets for fools. Now, this is also the shift in market cores. So that's another thing that, that is talked about. I've mentioned on, on previous episodes uh, about this guy, Jacques Attali, who wrote a book called The Brief History of the Future. He was a, a French uh, Jew, or you know, he's, he's a Jew, but claims to be French, um, who was an advisor to the, uh, the European uh the European Central Bank and the the French government for uh, for finance, and he talks about market cores a lot in his book. Uh, highly recommend anybody read it for history's sake. It is a very interesting uh, collection of, of, of market uh, market economics in in world history as far as Europe is concerned. So going backwards, world. like what New York, London, right. Amsterdam, right. Venice. Yeah, uh, no, before Venice, there was uh, there was I it was something in Spain. There was a Spanish one during the Moorish occupation. Of okay, that Cordova. Before. Yeah, Cordova. Yeah. Um, so you you had all Does these. Does he things. go back to like Uruk? He, I think so. He goes he goes far. Does he back. talk about like I don't know cities in the Orient like Baghdad or some of them? Yeah, he does. Yeah, it's actually yeah, it's really good. I highly recommend it. Um, but he mostly focuses on on this end of history. Uh, but yeah, he does talk about like the historical elements. Samarkand. But I, he mostly he mostly talks about the market cores though that were controlled by Jews. And that's the le, le juifs. Le, le juifs, yes. So, um, but that's the thing. So, uh, the market core of Amsterdam had dwindled, and this is like the big, the big end of it was 1799. The dissolution of the VOC was the death of Amsterdam as a market core, and the war with Napoleon and this whole uh, Rothschilds uh, a massive stock market play in London, right at the Battle of Waterloo, was the transition from Amsterdam to London of the market core. Right, at the because time. Th- it was basically the Rothschilds were were betting on the market, and it would depend on whoever won the battle. Right. And they were able to get the information back because they sent a reporter to the battlefield. And I think they, they sent the information back by, not telegraph, but... It was uh, whatever the new modern thing very was. primitive version of telegraph or sunbeaming or something. Sunbeam. <laughs> they got Smoke that, signals. You know, all you had to say was win or lose. And yeah. the, the Rothschild uh, house had got that first and yeah. placed and- his bets told everybody else the opposite had happened and they won out heavily uh, and they became beyond rich uh and and they but that's that was the shift the shift was that for the 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 napoleonic era shifted uh the european 
trade and economic market core from Amsterdam to London. Um, and so that was that became basically the fall of Holland was at that point. Yeah, in time. But it was almost predetermined. I mean, looking at it from a Hitlerian perspective, mm-hmm. like Holland is not going to be able to compete with England long term. No, just smaller population doesn't have a big enough base for its military. And so you can understand why the Dutch would have been so harsh against the British because they had to be. the British are naturally going to beat you right. if you don't repress them. Because that's, that's the thing is that you saw it already coming up. Like, like bankruptcy wasn't just on the tongue in 1799. It had been a, a topic, obviously, for the VOC years before that. Right? Now, if the Dutch had foreseen this in 1600, I suppose they could have sent out lots of colonists to New York and South Africa right. and just totally genocided Indonesia and repopulated it with, uh, you know, wooden shoes and windmill people. Right. <laughs> Probably wouldn't have worked, but I don't it, know. They would have had a better shot. <laughs> that would have been the Hitler Lebensraum policy, right? Because England at that point in time took the major the major continents, right? They had Canada, they had the U.S. at the time, or the colonies. They had right. Cape, they, because then they took they took Australia, you know, South, South Africa, they, they, Australia. Yeah. Um, so England yeah, they, was they, they, the British powerhouse. never made an attempt really to colonize India in the same way they did with America and Australia. Right. Oh, and, they had India too, yeah, so. and South Africa, which makes sense because probably just. White people aren't going to thrive in that environment. Right. And South Africa was really honestly mostly a trade hub. The, the English use it the same way, right, as a stop off between India and and Europe. Now, because remember, we're all talking about times here. This is long before the Suez Canal existed. So South Africa was actually a strategic point. Right. Um, had the Suez Canal been a thing, but the thing is it wouldn't have been because, and it, again, England owned Egypt, right, during the fall of the Ottomans towards the the, the Yeah, the you're going later here. 19th century, yes. Right, yeah, and because that's, well, and, and we'll still have to continue on because, again, the Dutch East Indies continued throughout that. In the mid-1800s, the mid uh, Britain lost its mandate, right, in in, Indi- or in Indonesia, and it returned to Dutch control. Um, and the, I don't think the British really cared because they were playing around in Africa and they were playing around in, uh, in in India and everything else like that. And if I'm not mistaken, I don't think the Dutch actually made a scramble for Africa attempt. I think they just tried to recoup what they had yeah. lost in Indonesia, um, which I guess it was fine because, again, they still had control. Yeah, name Dutch trade. colonies in Africa. I mean, Congo. No, that's that's Belgian. Haha. Ha. Yeah, obviously, but, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> What's the difference? <laughs> now there was they they actually wanted to, to unite those as united provinces back in the day, but that didn't come out to be the case. Right, because the Spanish maintained control of right. Belgium, and they couldn't dislodge them. Obviously, the Dutch didn't have the. And the Dutch were like, well, okay, we have enough money to fill uh, fill the, um, an army now, but we could also just make more money. <laughs> you know, the, the real eccentricity of Dutch history is why are they not Germany? Ooh, heavy. And you know, because in English, like the word Dutch up until the 1600s it's or Deutsch, 1700s, yeah. Dutch just meant all German speaking Central Europeans. Well, right, like people think Pennsylvania Dutch is not actually Pennsylvania Dutch, it's Pennsylvania Deutsch. It's just like they're no, all but it's not a mistake. German. Like people think that well, that's right, a mistake. Right. It's like, no, that's just an archaism. The yeah. old word in English for person from Holland or Austria or Bavaria. Because right. well, Holland is just the, the Netherlands, the low countries of. The German areas. Yeah. And, and I, I guess it's because the Dutch standardized their own language. And if you can call it that. Right. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, God. Which is weird, though, that they didn't adopt Martin Luther's German because they started. They only they became, did adopt Protestantism. They did, but they didn't adopt just Martin Luther. They standardized their own weird derpa derpa yeah. language now, to be fair and, though but, but northern germany because what i'm saying is all of northern germany speaks dutch 
kind of. Right. I mean, all the dialects of northern Germany sound like Dutch. Yeah. Um, but all the other northern German Holy Roman Empire states just went with Martin Luther and Austria and high Bavaria German, yeah. and went high German where the Dutch were like should still be part of the German speaking world. But I would imagine that it had something to do with the Spanish the Spanish rule, honestly, mm. because of the Catholicism element to it. And then like because after after Antwerp was taken uh, by the Spanish, uh, they allowed instead of just genociding the Protestants there, they allowed them all to move from antwerp to amsterdam and set up a protestant situation there which then stupidly for the spanish caused a you know to ferment you know independence uh, sentiments and everything else independent sentiments and everything else like that so they kind of created a protestant backwater country for themselves to deal with um which i mean for the spanish sake i guess is kind of foolish but um i would imagine there's something to do with that because again this, the hot like the dutch didn't actually uh when did they get their independence it was 15 or sorry 16 1648 okay so uh, was the actual independence time the end of the 30 years war is right. when that officially ended right and now mind you guys uh listening that the voc's heyday was all prior to this like or that that was like the, the heyday was the first 50 years of the 1600s mm-hmm. right the like 1560s effectively was the end of it but so the, was, VO, the voc was funding the dutch rebellion against the spanish the entire time yeah uh and so that's that's kind of an interesting thing too is that the most powerful company that was run by the dutch was not even during an independent element of of a nation like the the nation that fund or that that chartered the company was not even independent it was like the the company the voc was more independent than holland was so that would be kind of like us getting into the spice trade to win independence from zog yeah exactly that (laughs) 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 like ironically yeah uh, I'm sure there's other trades we could get into as well that would help fund that or whatever. But yeah, effectively, like that's the concept is to uh, if you if you any of our listeners out there, uh, instead of just being a straight up revolutionary and trying to, you know, say racism's on the Internet or whatever, start a business, uh, fund yourself and fund your friends. You know, like the concept of business is important, but you got to fund political action. That's the thing, because people in yeah. this movement, this has been going on for you know, 50, 70 years will be yeah. like, well, I'll just make a bunch of money. And it's like, well, it's it has to be directed that's great, towards something. Once you make, first of all, I have to give the Jews a compliment here. When the Jews make money, they immediately donate a lot of it to the ADL or to Jewish political organizations. When Goyim make money, we're like, oh, sweet, I got money. I'm going right. to spend it and I'm going to have lots of babies. It's like, okay, well, yes, I mean, having kids is important, it, but yeah. the political act, you can't, you are impotent and you're nobody without political action you can't be an individual there's a difference between being independent and being an individual and that's kind of the thing and then that's i hate to say it but the more and more that uh modernity is taking its toll on whites um when we do get money we do act like niggers uh and it's you know it's, it's, it's hard not to you get yeah. that money and you're like man Ooh. my car's a piece of shit time to get my, a new my one. shoes i've been wearing the same running shoes for like five years now i should go buy some new ones and it's like that's fine buy some new shoes but you don't need an entire closet full of gucci slip-ons or whatever the hell else right or like your girl doesn't need like all the new versace bags or whatever the hell else one purse actually does the trick despite what your woman wants to tell you one bag does the trick and despite well, what you want to dutch that uh, well right <laughs> 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 it's like they 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 could have uh, that they could have fun like, but the thing is they did fund a lot like a lot of a lot of the voc profits did go into land reclamation as i said earlier uh to improving holland itself so it would, oh god this is a modern interpretation but it's <laughs> just so it's so like typical of liberal like white people 
to find a technical solution when you need a political solution. Right. So the Dutch, yeah, reclaiming a lot bunch of land from the sea. Ingenious. Amazing. Yeah. Awesome. Agrarian. Why weren't they looking at conquering or expanding into Holland or into the Holy Roman Empire? Like why they wasn't should have why taken wasn't, why wasn't Holland the base of the reunified Germany and not Prussia? Oh, that's a good question, actually. I, yeah, that's you know we don't need to answer it right now I, but I, I mean I, why i guess could, the independent states not, in between prussia and holland whatever but is thing? that not plausible and they were both protestant too uh, holland had all the money holland should have holland did have all made the money. The, made, started making the moves on the continent to unify the german states not just that I, even if, even if they want to go the independent route they should have taken belgium they should have taken it from the spanish like they, they, they had the money to fund the armies to do it and the thing is they could have they could have funded landsneck they could have gotten german troops they could have easily they could have easily paid off German Protestant mission uh, you know mercenaries to come and take Belgium from the Spanish Catholics. It would have been easy. They had the money to do it, and they had the fleets to like basically yeah, surround the entire Iberian Peninsula. Well, I'll answer my own question. It's because you need that you need the military aggressive mindset and the self sacrificing mindset well, that, the Pru- that the Prussians had right. that the Dutch didn't. Well, Sorry, okay, Dutch people. The only Dutch that had it were in fucking Java, and they should have brought them back to the continent. Yeah, like, yes, it's yes, like, yes. had they brought Jan Cohen back from there after genocide? Like, take your talents and apply it to Europe yeah, now. Bring your samurai back to Belgium <laughs> <laughs> and, like, slaughter the Spanish. <laughs> like, you know? Like, they should have brought Cohen back with his army of samurai and, and wrecked the Spanish in Belgium. And they, like, could you imagine, like, the, the, the economic powerhouse that Antwerp and Amsterdam would, would be today if you had... Again, if you had a, an actual united provinces here between Belgium and and the Netherlands, like had they actually decided to do that, they would have actually been able to compete with Spain and France and England and Germany and these other these other empires. They would have been able to easily compete because they would have had enough of an agrarian backing, right, to to support their ports, enough of the production element of 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 having you know uh, inland territories and everything else like that, and not having to worry about half your country flooding every year, right. So they had they they had like the ability or they they had at one point in time they had the ability. Now obviously hindsight is twenty twenty and all that other shit. Right, right? they wouldn't yeah. have been able to really know that, that was the case. Um, but had they done that, I think we would have seen a, a much larger powerhouse out of Holland. Well, one one more thing counter historical to bring up is also Holland's just a province in the Netherlands, but yeah. Oh, whatever. Same thing. <laughs> you know. Holland, the Netherlands. What country has like five different names? The Dutch. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, though. Because like Holland, Holland is only the province that has Amsterdam. Uh-huh. That's, yeah. And the rest of it is just other provinces that have other names. But like all of it together is the Netherlands. Holland is actually only the one province. And I, I, I fall into that. I've been doing this whole episode just calling it Holland. But it's actually not technically Holland, even though we all call it Holland. The Holland, Netherlands. Yeah. Well, four syllables is inferior to two syllables. Ooh, based. But <laughs> My other counter historical thing to bring up is the Spanish were the terror of the world and oh, yeah. of Europe in the 1500s 1600s. Yeah, they everybody was afraid. Of Italy, of, they, you know, everybody was afraid of Spanish troops, and so you get you get these dumb interpretations in the alt right, where people will say things like, "Well, I don't know, Spanish Mediterraneans are fucking useless or whatever." Th- that's bullshit. <laughs> like, well, I mean, the Spanish Spanish troops in the 20th century under Spanish officers, yeah, probably not that great. I mean. You know, Blue Legion, all, all due respect, but right. not not the best. But you're troops. talking about an empire but, that had petered out by that point. But in this, but so why is that? Why is it that in the 1600s, 
early 1600s, all of Europe was afraid when Spanish troops showed up. They were the best disciplined, the best trained, yeah. the best led. Because from the 1490s up to the 1600s, they were just a rape well, cannon. Yeah, my, my, it's, it's, it's not all racial. Elaborate. Because I, I, I think is, I know where you're going is, with this. There's not a, uh, it's not that Swedes and Norwegians are racially superior to Spaniards. It has to do with whether a state is, as Spangler would say, in form. Mm, that makes it, sense. What, yeah. and, and in form, I mean, the way I interpret that is, Organized, that, yeah. is that it means, yes, that the the people who should be the leaders are the leaders. Right. Natural and the people, aristocratic And the hierarchy. people who aren't the leaders are in the mid and lower level positions. When you get it backwards, like Sweden and Norway have today, yeah. you have shit to your armies and you can't do anything. Or the U.S. is becoming now. Yeah. The U.S. is becoming now, right. Yeah. No, that makes total sense, actually, I would say. That, yeah. Yeah. That's so you know let's let's not rest on our laurels here with our you know Nordicism. I mean us both being no, you know, Nor- Nordic studs ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> Says the Italian. You know, let's not rest on our laurels here because yeah. you gotta the organization of the society is more important, important politically than the racial quality. Racial quality is important. No, it is very much it's important. obviously fucking important, yeah. and you have to say that, and you have to know that. You have to have a, you have to have a, you a need, proper if, stock in order to have the right order. But the thing is, is that yes, order matters. But in order, and in order to build that proper stock through eugenics, you need the proper political order right you need a hierarchy that's that's set up straight it's the same thing as like saying like okay can we actually say that the ottomans or the arabs were racially inferior when they had the world by the balls so for yeah like when they're kicking years. our ass it's hard to say well these hajis are inferior, inferior. Right. it's like yeah can you really say that whenever they like invaded all the way up into austria and france and took over all of iberia and all of north africa and then all the way to indonesia it's right like, no, like they're, just, in India. they're just better organized <laughs> they were extremely well organized you know and that's the thing and that's that's the thing we were talking about this in the beginning people of people not of understanding fucking political the poli- how politics works and the political power well, people of look organization. At it in a gestalt way, right? Gestalt being that is the study of the whole, right? You have to look at it as a total, a t- in totality. What is all the? What are all the components that go into this thing? Yes, there's race. Yes, there's economics. Yes, there's political shit. There's like there's an infinity number of things. There's also just luck of being at the right place in time in history, right? Of of a confluence of, of elements. Um, so all of these things come into into into, into account. What we said at the, at the beginning of of the episode here is that. When the Portuguese went to uh, the Indies or whatever the first time, they weren't they weren't there in a vacuum. They didn't just exist there by themselves and were able to take advantage of this. They had to fight the the Islamic elements that were now already present. I will say for the Portuguese, I, there's a great book called Conquerors by a fellow named Roger Crowley that I read a couple years ago about basically the the ten or fifteen years of glory. And the, the most adventurous, interesting period of Portuguese colonization from circa uh, late 1490s to early 1500s. And these Hidalgos, these like <laughs> uh, Portuguese heroes were almost like just stupid. <laughs> like they, they would have a captain. Uh, I forget the, these guys' names, but these guys were so brave and so tough and so amazing. They would... They had to put out orders to say, okay, if you are ordered to fall back, if your ship is ordered to fall back, you have to do so. And some of these guys would say like, no, <laughs> I will fight. They could picture yeah, like how brazenly picture, 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 it. picture Eric Stryker in like a, a little Spanish conquistador hat <laughs> and, a, and a breastplate with a sword. <laughs> I like, no, ones. I will stand and fight. Which is based, like, but like, like 10 to 1 odds. Like, I'm going to kill all these Hindus and Muslims that are coming at me. I'm going to slaughter them and get like taken down with my ship. But so, that's what was going on. Like, they were actually fighting the stupid strategy. Oh, yeah. There was no. 
there was no like holding back. It was like, I'm going to attack, 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 attack under the most ridiculous odds. And 80% of the time, pick a number, let's say 80% of the time, yeah. it worked. Right. That's a, well, and when it didn't work, it was a disaster. But right. But and the Spanish bravado was the same thing. I mean, look at like Cortez well, and the Aztecs, right? Like that's one of the most famous ones where he goes in with like, what, 200 guys and in in a cohort of, of, of disgruntled natives that are tired of being sacrificed on, on you know, pyramids that then they just destroy an entire empire in like a week. They're just like, all right, it's ours now. And they just wreck the place with like nobody. They had 200 guys. The, the natives, the, the actual natives were obviously not not fit to defeat the Aztecs on their own, clearly, right? Even if they had the combined strength of all the tribes, the Aztecs are still superior militarily, right? Because they had their shit together. They had their organization. Right. They had their their system ordered. It took 200 white guys with guns and armor to just roll up in there with horses and wreck the place. That's real organization. Like, that's a real serious structure organization. Obviously, you have the technological advantage still. But yeah, the technological advantage doesn't explain destroying the Aztec Empire. It honestly can't, though, because you look, you juxtapose that with even things like like the Aztecs had just bum bum rushed. And we all know, you know, we all know Aztec Mexicans, when you get them, their blood lost up, they'll they'll, they'll attack, like, look at the Alamo, for Christ's sake. They'll attack, they'll attack, no questions. Well, look at I 95 now. <laughs> but you know they'll just they go berserk and that's the thing and so cortez just lined them up and just like dropped them all and and you can compare that even juxtaposed right as far as well, borders but he, concerned, he suffered with, his defeats had to fall back right and the, he wasn't they didn't pursue and they didn't like run him they down they should have because like they he, needed he to didn't have ships to go home you know they burned the ships effectively and were like well we're here now and they released boars into the wilds so they could eat later which was a really smart idea the spanish did is that when they went to the new world they released pigs into the wild so they would breathe so that future conquistadors would have food to hunt it's really brilliant um but juxtapose that with the the british assault on the zulus in the late 1800s right the british suffered defeats at the hands of literally spear chuckers is like yeah like right exactly you know like and that's the thing like a shaka zulu was not a retard that's the thing it's like we have to we're talking here about about racial quality uh and and organization shaka zulu had his shit organized like Nobody else, obviously, on the African continent was able to defeat the British military at the height of it, right? At the pinnacle of the British military's prominence, he was able to to make defeats on the British military with literally no weapons except like spears. Spears, Well, and they had the had the um, that one uh, Zulu weapon. I can't remember the name of it. That was effectively the short spear, which was the predecessor to the sword that hadn't evolved that far yet. But the thing is, these dudes were in. Yeah, it's hard to manufacture. It's hard to like blacksmith a sword. Right. And they they, think they were working still on old school blacksmithing techniques, but still they had short spears. They had cowhide shields and they had grass shirts or or skirts. And that was it. And they still were able to defeat the well-organized, disciplined British military in certain in certain bouts so to say that i uh, the spanish the spanish defeat of the aztecs was some easy thing like while we think it's funny to, to meme about it, okay he went in there with 200 dudes and just wiped them out the organization that it would have taken to do that because again shaka zulu didn't have the empire the aztecs did nowhere near it right and these guys were able to just walk in and take the place the organizational level you had to have was on some other level and it it goes it coincides with what was happening in the 1500s in spain and portugal after like they got super organized throw the moors out and they ran with that for a hundred years after that and were able to conquer most of the known world and dominate europe oh yeah for sure yeah as we were talking about as you brought before dominate europe itself 
and and really keep them under the thumb for that, which again was one of the reasons why the Dutch had to get organized in this capitalistic manner to fund the VOC. Again, they they pioneered ways of stock market trading and 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 company trading or company organization. Again, the organization is the is the key part here. They had to pioneer ways of company organization that had never before been seen on the world in order to beat the greatest military and an armada the planet had ever seen. And they did it. Mashallah Habibi, we have reached the point of we need to talk about the decline and fall of the Dutch East Indies. Yeah. And in reading this book, I've just realized it's really easy for me to remember the conclusions of conversations, but it's hard to remember the details. I don't know why why that is it's neural networks respectively <laughs> it's a, you have a neural pathway and then if you have new information coming in it usually only sticks if it fits into your all already uh pre-concocted neural pathways yeah and all my pre-concocted neural pathways are the details of the uh, you know, you know, ones, yeah. roman empire and i don't know the arabs right and so and if, if it fits shit. into that which uh, pr- this fits into that because of indonesia being islamic for the most part although we were discussing but this in is the like interim, the corner yeah. of the islamic world about which i have never read it anything. is the far end of the islamic world for sure which is why they're not fully islamic it is i think we were discussing earlier off off, off yeah mic. I, what, I, what's what's good about this Vleke book and um, another book that I flipped through about Indonesia written by a certain Englishman by the name of Raffles mm. who is a big uh, orientalist and uh, studied the languages of this area and oh, was the founder of Singapore as well. Oh, a man of action and a man of thought. <laughs> he, Very rare. Both these guys point out that Indonesia was influenced by Hindu culture and, and Sanskrit culture for the early part of its history. Right. Prior to Islamization. Right. Prior to uh, mashallah. <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 the coming of the word of the Nabiullah Muhammad uh, <laughs> <laughs> Allah and so forth. But <laughs> the funny thing about Indonesia is how much Hinduism has stuck with the people and how much their native traditions have stuck yeah. despite Islam. And even in the modern day. Like, even in the modern day. Like the prohibition against drinking is sort of observed maybe sometimes by particularly pious people, but not so much. Vleke mentions that the people will go and worship statues of old like Hindu stuff that is around in the countryside so there's there's very much that undercurrent of hindu culture and the reverence of history and and the main literary culture is derived from sanskrit it's derived from the the great works of sanskrit literature which have been translated or reworked into javanese yeah architecture being a big one too uh, and uh uh fashion culture is also one that persists even today like so you'd say obviously the islamic people uh but they'd be dressing in non-islamic garb Right, like their their traditional, uh, you know, Javanese or Indonesian style garb, uh, with their very pointy, strange hats and their elf-like ears that they always have portrayed mm, on everything. Yes, um, and that that alone is obviously because it's it's unique, even from from India, right? Even from Hindu stuff, it it's, it predates all that. 
So you can it's you can see where there's a persistence of civilization that is underlying uh, the the colonization by India, then by the uh, Islamic uh, caliphates uh, or sultanates or however however it goes, uh, then to the Dutch, right? The Dutch the Dutch colonization after that, uh, which we're talking about now that we've gotten to the to the 1800s. So you have. Um, because again, in 1799, uh, with the dissolution of the VOC, comes the nationalization of the of the company and all of its assets by the Dutch uh, by the Dutch government. So therefore, you start colonialism. And at the year 1800 is the year of uh, the beginning of Dutch colonialism in uh, the the Dutch Indies or the East Indies. So you have these these successive empires that have taken over uh, Indonesia, with the Indonesian people still being able to retain. Uh, this underlying ancient culture of theirs with their architecture that miraculously has not been destroyed for the most part. Uh, there's a lot of current well, with work. no like carpet bombing, you know, you can retain right. a lot. But there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of retaining. There's there's obviously a lot of it's been just just weathered right over the years and, and, yeah. and thousands of years of it. But uh, there's a lot of current. Um, uh, reclamation and uh, restoration projects happening in in Java and other parts of Indonesia to rebuild these old temples, uh, and they have the, this this specific type of uh, archway for like the entrances of so, of cities that it's like two not really pillars but it's it's almost looks like imagine like a mountain right but it's like sheer right down the center with like a very thin narrow walkway that you can walk straight through it and it's yeah. like it's supposed to be intimidating as you walk through it it's supposed to like humble and and and, and minimize like the uh, the value of the individual as compared to what it is that you're entering uh, and they're rebuilding a lot of these uh, throughout Indonesia which is and it's totally not Islam it has nothing to do with Islam right as far as a, a culture or or metaphysics or or religion or anything else like that um, it's purely like, it's purely Indonesian and so they're having these these uh, is kind of this new wave of, of uh, I, I guess it's, it's like a, a re-envisioning of the ancient civilization that existed prior to all of these these uh, uh, colonial empires. So we, we can talk about, oh, my European colonialism all day long, but you know the Arabs and and the other uh, Islamic groups engaged in colonialism, right? As much as, as much if not more so than we did. Um, and on top of that, the the Hindu culture was obviously a colonial power at the time of Indonesia. Indonesia wasn't initially Hindu, so any type of uh, well, it's strange because Hinduism know, only ever really spread to Indonesia, as far as an outside place. Yeah, it, it didn't really spread into Southeast Asia or into Tibet. I mean, Buddhism did, but Hinduism, right. strangely, in in early times spread to indonesia right but again and, and i would imagine and, and not that it would probably imagine but if you look into this or whatever it has to do with the trade right that has to do with the trade from jakarta so jakarta obviously being the the main principal trade city on java i uh, i could imagine why you're talking about ancient ancient india was a massive civilization right the ancient hindus had a massive and and prominent military potent civilization and in order for you to have that you have to have trade so yeah. in order to have trade there where's the massive trade route jakarta into japan into china and the other parts of the world and i sort of pointed out this earlier but if you look at the population figures for these islands today so sumatra biggest island on the far west end yeah it's Ge six, geographically or population wise uh, or both geographically farthest west yeah it's 65 million it's a lot of people it's a lot of people but but java the Fairly small island off the east coast of Sumatra right. is 145 million. But it's also the bigger but that cities is that, and trading that's, hubs. Yeah. That's the center. The center of Indonesian civilization is Java. Yeah. And if you look at Borneo, Borneo is like the Wild West 
because uh, yeah, it's, it's, like, well, it's got three it's got three nations it's on like it. canada yeah. it's it's <laughs> it's 20 some millions even yeah. today i mean if you go back to the 1600s java's population was i think 7 million which is still a lot which is i guess a lot for back then but yeah, yeah it's a fraction of what it considering is considering that you had an estimated population of about 70 million throughout the entirety of the indo-chinese area right mm-hmm. so 7 million of 70 you're talking 10 percent of the entire population of you're the talking entire like region. 1600 or so uh, 16, 1700s, yeah, you're talking about about 70 million people, like, for the entirety of the region, right? Like, like, like French and Dutch, Indochina, that uh-huh. whole area is 70 million people. 7 million people on Java is 10% of the entire population on one island. That's significant. You and know? it's been increasing almost exponentially since then. And oh, yeah. today, the total population of Indonesia is comparable to the United States. It's, um, it's like... 250 270 million right and just for for reference sake for those who don't land know too it's it's like spread infinitely out infinitely less land it's, yeah it's, it's two texases with the population of all of america right and that's and that's all the islands not just java you right. know what i mean and that's the thing it's the united states for, for but java is about half of it yeah well that's about 145 third, about third, yeah. to 145 million on java well, to population wise yeah 200 and but landmass wise it's it's not the largest island that they have yeah you know by I mean? far. so that's the thing and then so we were talking about on one area so the population density is extreme uh compared to what so we're talking about the united states has a population of roughly we're talking 300 about Japan levels of population density probably more than that yeah because <laughs> like so the u.s has, has a has a, uh, a rough estimation of population of about 300 to 320 million people um and so again, you take about a, well. The if half you include illegals, you're at like 500 million. Ooh, womp it. <laughs> <laughs> so, but you have uh, you have about half that population size on one island of Java, and it's that's that's a. I don't think that's fathomable to most Westerners it's to go to these third world countries, like unless you've traveled there. Like I've, I've traveled, I'm sure you have as well. I know you. I know you have. It's, it's, yeah, it's not to these like, third world hellholes. Yeah, no, but like people, I've never been to a jungle country. Oh, they're interesting as all hell because it's like there's nowhere to go except jungle and population, and there's a very stark contrast between the two. Um, but the, the thing is that, but even even going to third world countries in general, the population density of certain areas is unfathomable to most Americans, right? Unless you live in like new york city right kind of thing yeah you know the in jakarta or batavia as as it was called then right the dutch had this problem with the chinese immigrants because the chinese would just build houses on top of each other and into the street wow it's almost like hong kong i I know it's it's not surprising the dutch had to be like hey chinese you got to clear this shit out we need a road here yeah we need to like have a road instead of a ghetto thank you So, but yeah, and it was the thing is, again, the Chinese were colonizing this area also, right, through for many, many years. It should be pointed out that it wasn't colonized under the Chinese government. Right. It was like a more weird, decentralized, like slow racial infiltration of the Java and the other islands. And if you look at Indonesia now, the demographics of Indonesia now, you have an extremely high population of the the population that um, that is of Chinese origin. And what's funny, too, about the Chinese in Indonesia for all these centuries is that it was all men. Yeah. And so they were marrying locals and then... Because, again, they, they came over as traders mostly. So. Right. But they, they would stay in Java or Borneo or wherever, and they would maintain their Chinese-ness by speaking Chinese for a while. And then eventually they would just adopt Malay. And then the only thing that was Chinese about them is that they were still doing ancestor worship and identifying as Chinese. Right. And then also the obvious... The obvious external racial component there you know as far as physicality is concerned like they're obviously chinese you know 
the yeah, explorers I mean, where they look compared to the natives. If you, keep, like, if you keep breeding with Chinese incomers. Yeah. Because, like, again, it's like you have more and more males coming over and that those genetics are going to filter into the population of the females and yada, yada. And your kids are going to marry half Chinese, but your kids are also half Chinese. And you're eventually going to come back to being almost Chinese. And that's kind of what you have now. You have like a huge population of people in Indonesia that are they look like they're just Chinese. Um, what, another thing that that they uh, that Vleke pointed out about the Chinese in Indonesia, and we're going to get to we're going to wrap this up and talk about the Dutch and the end of yeah. Dutch power <laughs> there. But well, the thing about the Chinese is there are two waves. The, er, the prior to the 19th century, the Chinese coming into Indonesia were forbidden to go back to China. Like there was a law in China that you couldn't once you left you were not allowed to leave China. <laughs> so they were coming to these places and just had to set up and make it. And then after the 19th century, you started to have the coolie phenomenon of Chinese coming who were coolies, as we say in English, meaning they were just there to work for a set period and they go back to Canton at the end of it. <laughs> uh, so I guess there were racial fights between the coolie Chinese and the Indonesianized chinese yeah the 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 nativized chinese yeah yeah but all this kind of played into the period of when you know going into the 20th century when the japanese started to move in so let's just finish out the 19th century so the the remarkable things to me were that the dutch started to have to deal with native rebellions there was a big native rebellion in 1830 and then there was another big one in the 1890s. Now, note in, for our, our listeners here, in 1830, this is right around the time where the uh, the Netherlands just got their colonies back from England post the Napoleonic Age. So they had just now re-got... So the, for, the, for the brief overview of the 1800s, they started out the 1800s not having Indonesia because of the Napoleonic uh, mandates and the dissolution of the VOC in 1799. Um, and then towards the early middle part of the century, they were able to regain uh, their, their colonies from Britain, which... In a weird turn of events, the Brits actually gave people back their colonies. I don't know yeah, it's what really weird. kind of deal they struck to do that. but that's, It's like those Dutch companies at Waterloo couldn't have been that valuable. Right. And so they, yeah, so they obviously, they were able to, to magic, and I, I, I do emphasize this, magically get their empire back from, from Britain uh, in Indonesia. Uh, still at this point in time, though, having had forfeited uh, the colonies, Cape Town and everything else at that point, right? So, like, you had this, this is the point, so the 1800s, uh, for listeners, this is the point in time where most people think about colonialism, right? Like, this is the big colonial element, and most of the time it's focused on the scramble for Africa, uh, which, again, British was the, you know, Britain was one of the big components there, but also the Portuguese, also the Spanish, also the Germans, also, you know, uh, all these different elements, the, the French. French, the French specifically was one of the Hell, big ones. The Italians. Right. Even the Italians. Everybody got a piece of the scramble for Africa. So that's what most people think of when they think of colonialism and think of the 1800s. Pith helmets, Rudyard Kipling, uh, you know, the the British Raj is a big part of this as well. Uh, You know, Mowgli and and the the Jungle Book and all that other fun stuff. Heart of Africa or the Heart of Darkness, all these other types of books that came out of this. and you see a romanticism start up also in literary works uh, from things like Treasure Island. 
uh, Treasure Island was written about the 1700s, obviously, and piracy and all this other cool stuff that at this point in time had kind of been de- de- destroyed. Uh, piracy, while it still exists even today, right, in these certain areas specifically, uh, the number one area, and so they, but they were trying to romanticize that in the 1800s, but we'll skip to today. Uh, the number one area for piracy in the, in the world today is the Straits of Java. Even today. Or the Straits of Malacca or the Straits of Java? Malacca, Java. Yeah, like the Straits near Java. All the, by Malacca, yeah, all yeah. those weird Asian-y places. Right. So, Indonesia, though. Indonesia is the number one piracy zone in the world, uh, seconded only by uh, Somalia and the Horn of Africa, right? Mm, of uh, course. And, right. And then third being Caribbean, surprisingly. Uh, people think that these places have been anti, you know, have been pirate-free since the 1700s, but that is actually not the case. Uh, the only time there was pirate-free is when Europeans actually ran all this shit around the 1800s and 1900s when it was like a white world and we were actually able to rid ourselves of piracy and slavery and all this other bad shit. We were the first ones to abolish all of that and we got rid of it and now the white world is diminishing. We are seeing a return to barbarism throughout the planet. Uh, we're seeing uh, rising rates of piracy in the Caribbean, rising well, I mean, rates of piracy ugh, in the Horn of Africa. As, as a pirate once said to Alexander the Great, something, something, what you do on land, I do on sea. What's the difference? Well, right. And that's but this thing, though. It only can happen if empire doesn't extend to the sea. And that's kind of the thing. So we've seen a, a fall of empire for the Western world and a return to uh, effectively sea empires that are that are rising up because again and we're talking about like, even on a, on a side tangent we're talking about the dutch here uh as far as how things were concerned as as far as how they were able to, to fund voyages right they had individual people funding the voyages for for stock markets in somalia right now in in 2022 you see the same things happening for piracy you have uh entire markets set up to fund pirate voyages to go off and loot ships and they come back and they get a share of the profits wow those guys are so capitalist we should maybe bring them to america to <laughs> boost our economy right yeah we need more somali pirates to, <laughs> to fund our our capitalist fucking gains in the u.s um but yeah they have stock markets in somalia for piracy currently and the same thing happens currently as of now in java and in indonesia well, with the was, pirates there it was so going back to the 19th century though it was a big thing around acha mm. and you and i being old fags remember that acha <laughs> was the place that got raped by the tsunami in 2006 Ooh. i think that was one of them yeah yeah so acha is on the northern part of sumatra and it was a sultanate and mm, sort of under dutch control but yeah. sort of there's independent. still sultanates out there uh, now ac- according to the treaty signed with the british after the napoleonic wars acha was supposed to be independent of the dutch but the dutch were also s- supposed to police piracy right around there so in other words acha was independent on land but wasn't allowed to you know levy taxes on (laughs) sea traffic right that was all in dutch control but there was a big so there was a big revolt in the 1830s the dutch put down there was another big revolt in the 1890s and the dutch were able to suppress it eventually but they and they adopted a lot of the same tactics that america did in afghanistan and iraq it's amazing we have to learn these things again or it's the opposite way around it, we adopted the tactics well, not, in right, afghanistan and iraq that the dutch had used in, in Indonesia. Well, yes or the italians in libya or anything it's like right. we have to learn these counterinsurgency things again and again and again and people like david petraeus or 
David Betrayas, faggot, Ooh. or uh, or what's his name, McChrystal, will go around and be like, well, yeah, uh, yeah, really smart on this stuff. It's like, yo, just read you, history, just like, read the books. Like, <laughs> like the Romans were doing this in Numidia, like whatever. You know, <laughs> yeah, it's not it, or Iberia. It's yeah. it's it's obvious how you do these things. You have to be nice to the people that work with you. And you have to viciously, viciously oppress the people that don't work with you. Yeah. And we've seen that throughout the Which is what the Dutch did. And the key guy in this... So, there's two Orientalists I want to mention of the 19th century. Uh, One is this Dutchman by the name of Snook. (laughs) Sorry, he had a a longer name. I I just don't remember. (laughs) He was a cool guy. He went to Malay and he learned Malay. Uh, the which is the lingua franca of, yeah. of trade in in the South Seas. Or some people would pronounce it as Malay, but yeah, he, emphasis slightly different. Who cares? But whatever. Yeah. So he read their <laughs> books and talked to them and studied their culture, and he basically worked with the governor general, Hoots Hoots with the Z on the end. Hoots. Z. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And they were through 10 years of hard fighting and dealing and propaganda, we're able to suppress this rebellion in Acha. The other guy is at Britbong by the name of Raffles. Silly name. It is a silly name. And he was an Arabist. <laughs> you know, this is a theme throughout Western history. It you is. know, people shit on me for speaking Durka Durka, but yeah, but, uh, but look, El Cid. I forgot about uh, it. <laughs> El Cid loved Arabic poetry. Well, I'm sure he did. He was, you know, in, you know, in, the greatest, the greatest Moorish Haji fighter. Empire. The greatest Haji fighters are always Arabists. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, uh, you got to, you got to know your enemy, right? Yeah. This, so that's yes. that is a thing. And Raffles was the guy who founded Singapore. He identified this island off the coast of Malay, Malay, place. Yeah, place. <laughs> and said, well, okay, well, this is you know, important for trade because you can send trade through these, the, the Straits of Malacca here. Yeah. And if you hold this Island one, it's easy to defend because it's a freaking Island. Right. And, and it's a small Island too. And it's I don't not know why nobody, Java. I don't understand why nobody had identified that up to that point. Maybe there's something to do with the currents. I think the reason being is because Jakarta was already an established trade route. Yeah. I don't know why Jakarta would have been versus that Singapore. Hooker, it's, it's Singapore perfect. is the hook around. It's it perfect. Is. No, I think the reason being is because they, they had, a more difficult time of sea navigation at the time and getting to Singapore was technically more dangerous than it was to just go to the ports of, of Jakarta. Uh-huh. So I'd imagine that with the technology increases throughout the 1800s and into the early 1900s, you would have had a better opportunity to go to places that were more difficult to reach uh, as compared to like laying waste to your ships, going up to coral reefs and everything yeah. else like that. So Raffles did the Anglo thing and he said, okay, well... <laughs> No tolls at my port come to my port and Ooh. started attracting a lot of the, the traffic. Hell yeah. There. No trade tariffs equals total profit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, that's how Singapore got started. And actually another sort of random thing to just throw in here. I, there's a, a, bu- a family of Anglos took over Sarawak, which is the northern part of Borneo. So if you look at a map of Indonesia, you see this big fat island, Borneo, and then you see this cutout on the northern part. And you're like, which is its own thing is, currently still. And you're like, what is this? It's Sarawak. And there's actually a book about this by a Englishman by the name of uh, Runciman. 
he wrote a, he wrote a, a series on the Crusades that are, is very good, and he wrote a book on the fall of Constantinople, 1453. Stephen Runciman, I think he was a fag, but uh, <laughs> oh well, uh, yeah, oh well, he, he was a fag who put his effort, he put his ability to the best that it could be. Yeah, instead of channeling all that the energy of women, he channeled the history. And, and he wrote a book <laughs> that's called the White Rajas of Sarawak. Mm. That I've seen a copy of, and I really ought to read it. But there's a really, a really strange hundred-year history there of a bunch of Anglo's who took over Sarawak and proclaimed themselves rajas, Ooh, base. and just ran that part of Indonesia for the whole like 19th century and in, into the 20th century. Because if, if people, for for our listeners right now that, that aren't too too up to date on their maps or whatever, uh, Borneo is split between. Th- technically three nations currently between malaysia indonesia and there's the sultan of brunei yeah brunei that's the other one yeah um now the thing with that is though is that borneo is a massive island uh and it is also uh for any of our zoologists out there it's the only place in the world where you find uh orangutans in the wild um but so that sounded pretty racist oh (laughs) but yeah so it's the only place you find orangutans um in borneo but the thing is is that throughout most of its history uh the dutch did not actually control the entire island of borneo and those borders between what is now malaysia and indonesia were the drawing points between uh british borneo and dutch borneo because you really just had to control the coast i mean that's right and that's the thing so the 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 british controlled like the northwestern side of it and the dutch controlled all the interior and most of the east to south side of of the island um even though they didn't really exploit much resources there because again they were they were more focused on what was closer to java uh and the spice islands and whatnot but you did have obviously some plantations there in borneo that's like a massive island there's a ton of history to go there um but it would make sense that because i uh, again for for our our um are not map inclined uh, readers. Borneo's northern coast is one of the closest uh, jump off points towards China. Uh, and so obviously we know the British were very much involved in China and Hong Kong, even up until the, uh, the mid 20th century or the late 20th century. Um, and so a jump off point between northern Borneo and the, uh, I guess, the, the British Borneo coast or whatever you would have called it back then because it was the British, the British Malaysian area uh, was a perfect trade route or stop off point uh, to bypass uh, the the main Dutch trading ports of Jakarta uh, before they would get to China. So you could get from China to Borneo and then from Borneo, you would go through the straits and only pay a minor tariff to the Dutch to pass through uh, Java as compared to doing all of your trading in Jakarta. Although to be fair, obviously the Chinese still did it because Borneo was never set up as a major trade route. So you'd still get all of your, your China, not like the country, but like, you know, your porcelain, right? It would be going through Jakarta and all mm. that other fun stuff, which is a massive trade element too to the voc that we didn't talk about at all throughout this episode uh was was porcelain trade the china trade right the china like people talk about fine china all the time where that come from it came from the voc and importing that into uh to holland uh was a big deal and there's oh, so a like blue and white stuff yeah. that my mother has in her like china cabinet right exactly like all of that <laughs> like that's a big deal that was a major trade element to the voc as well that came from china right that's where it came from uh and there's a ton of shipwrecks that are still out there that have entire there was a massive one that was found uh i think it was in the 90s uh but there were might have been the early 2000s that had 
entire dinner sets that were uh, still like without being destroyed on, on the shipwreck that they found or whatever that had uh, place settings for over a hundred people of, of all this fine china and everything mm. else like that uh, so it was a massive trade like a huge trade giant treasure ships that were full of, of laden with china and spices and all this other stuff so to, to think that the voc only got their their name from trading spices is kind of foolish like there it's 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 much more than that. I mean, we're talking about silks. We're talking about silver. We're talking about China. We're talking about spices. We're talking about uh, slavery. Even like this massive things. Um, even even don't even, forget the coffee. The coffee and, and, the, and the tobacco. The they started planting tobacco. Tobacco in was Indonesia. a big one. Coffee was a big one also. And then on top of that, you had raw materials that we don't talk about at all either. Uh, wood for shipbuilding and other things like that. Like there was a massive movement of raw materials through those areas as well. So it, you're talking about a totally modern, what you considered a modern industrial society as far as trade is concerned, moving through this one port of Jakarta. Oh, the other thing about Raffles is he's the guy who wrote, I guess, probably the main book in English about Indonesian history. Mm. And he wrote in the early 19th century. And you can find it online. I'll, I'll post the links to it because I, I was perusing it and it's very good. I mean, it's just interesting ethnographic and geographical information and, and history about the whole area because Raffles knew it. He knew it as a scholar and he knew it as a uh, man of action. <laughs> but yeah, so uh, so that was kind of the thing. So moving in towards the, the early 20th century, um, so there was another point in time, uh, I can't remember if it was in the late 1800s or the early 1900s, where I... Uh, the Dutch lost control of of the uh, of Indonesia to the British again. I want to say that was part of the early, the the eighteen hundreds. Um, it was like a small conservatorship or whatever of it, but they got it back again. I don't know. It's like there's two instances of this. There was the Napoleonic era. And it's like the British. One. I feel like the British just knew they owned Holland so much at that point that they were like, okay, right. fine, because they did the same thing after World War Two, where they were like, okay, you yeah, know, you can we, just kind of have it back uh, or whatever. But that's yeah, the thing is like you manage this for us. Yeah, because again, London at the time had been had become the new market core of, of world economic trade, right? Or world, world market uh, commerce. I uh, and and Amsterdam had fallen. So at the same time, yeah, you do have this financial this financial uh, dominance over Holland from England that they would say, well, maybe we can let them run our spice right, trades for like, us. You know? Let's let the continental Anglos do it. Right, yeah. <laughs> the other water Jews. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we, we warned you. We yeah, were going to yeah. be talking shit on the Dutch today. Yeah, and uh, it happened. <laughs> but yeah, so um, so the Dutch were, were in control still of Indonesia all the way up until, I want to say it was like the, the 19... 49. Was 49 was the end of it? Yeah. Okay. So yeah, about, the, about the, again, like the 50s. They have this thing with the nines, right? So like right before the, the turn of the next group. Uh, so they, they dissolved the VOC in, in 1790 and they lost uh, all control of Indonesia in 49 or 1949. So, yeah, the thing to say about the 20th century is that the whole Orient from Morocco to Japan started to get aware that they could beat the white man at things. Right. And mostly because of the white man's infighting and killing itself right basically uh, but but the first thing was the russian fight with the japanese in 1905 mm, and yes the Lothrop, russo japanese war if you've ever read lothrop stoddard new worlds of islam oh i thought we were going to talk about uh you know no, the, no, no, the rising we, tide of color against white world well, that one too, <laughs> sure but anything lothrop stoddard but especially yeah. new worlds of islam he talks about this mm. and he talks about how the islamic world in india he spends a lot of time talking about India, which is sort of a letdown for me because I thought we were going to talk about Islam, but he just talks about Ooh. India for half the book. 
<laughs> how these brown peoples started to see, okay, well, the white man can be beat at his own game. And in Indonesia, that was like especially a big thing right. after 1905 when the Russians lost to the Japanese. The Indonesians saw, hey, you know, we ought to have an independence movement. So independence yep. movements started to arise in Indonesia against the Jap or against the uh, the Dutch, with the idea of having a you know free and independent Indonesia. And it's funny reading the Vleke books. This Vleke book was written in ni- 1945. And it's very dated because the last chapter of it is just all about World War II and how evil the Japs are and how bad <laughs> the Germans are. And the rest of the book is great, but you get to the last chapter and it's like, okay, I see. Printed at Harvard University. Like, right. I get oh, it. Wah, I get it. I, get, I see what you're doing here. Uh, the start at, of propaganda. At, and well, and it's, it's so pitiful to read it now because the propaganda line for this Dutchman writing in English in 1945 is that the Dutch had started to build this happy multicultural society. He doesn't quite say that. Right. But, but it's it implied. He's talking about the, the Dutch and how many more Dutch, hundreds of thousands of more Dutch moved to Indonesia in the early 20th century. Right, yeah. It, it, before that, it had just been ruled over by a few Dutch administrators. But in the early 20th century, it started to become an it outlet was real for colonialism, colonialism yeah. for uh, farmer, for people who wanted to be merchants and farmers and all kinds of it things. It offered opportunity after the major falls, like the consecutive the first two world wars were really brutal on Europe and their economy and everything else like that. And it, it presented, like the colonies presented a lot of opportunities for Europeans getting out of there. We'd look at South what, Africa yeah, too. What's, what's the phrase, go west, young man, or go... That was for us, yeah. But it's, 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 it's Go it's, to Indonesia, young man. Right, you know, and that's the thing. So you see that that was kind of the big deal of the Cold War and and curbing what would effectively became the un or zog uh, well, when you curbing. say cold war you mean the cold war between germany and britain the oh. interwar period oh well no oh, oh, sorry I'm, I'm after after the second world war in the cold war where you have um the the curbing of affluent european colonial civilizations popping up post world war ii where you have like a mass exodus of europeans from both the first and second world war to places like africa to places like indonesia right where you had to have the UN had to curb this this new resurgence of European colonialism in the in the oh because all these white people wanted to get out of Europe and they wanted to start their own nations right look, look at look at uh, look at um, Rhodesia Rhodesia right. right what's one of the biggest examples there is specifically is Rhodesia uh, is that you have mass amounts of British people. Uh, you know, like, fleeing uh, the economic downturns of of Europe, and they had to go and settle in new places. They wanted to start these new right. nations. Well, well, what was going on in Indonesia though is a lot of these Dutch yeah. were going there for ten or twenty years to make their fortunes, and then go and retire in Amsterdam or Rotterdam, right. yeah. and you know, smoke marijuana and bang hookers. Right, <laughs> <laughs> the Dutch way. <laughs> <laughs> and so, but you saw the same thing with with England. You know, like that. Um, a lot of people in the Raj in, in India would go and they'd make their fortune in India, and they'd come home back to, to London or wherever in England, right? Or, or God forbid, Birmingham. But uh, you have, yeah, I know. But <laughs> you have. Um, you have a lot of these these recurrent themes, right? And so, with the Dutch moving in to to, uh, but in droves is the thing is you you mentioned the, the numbers or right? the vast numbers that are moving there. But yeah, so tons of Dutch were moving there, and what this book talks about is it criticizes the Japanese for trying to create the greater East Asian co prosperity sphere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, whatever. <laughs> laugh, laugh all you like. 
But the justification for why the Dutch should he he's in this impossible position of he's trying to justify Dutch colonialism as for, as for a, 300 years as a multicultural thing 350 yeah. years and he's like but we were doing this project from circa 1920 of creating this race mixed happy culture and the Japanese destroyed it right. it's like bro like come, come on you on. can't give me this 200 pages of race war and then at the end be like oh well the japanese huh, the japanese just ruined they it for the us they were the real racists yeah, the japanese were the, yeah <laughs> the japs were the real racists yeah, it's like know. okay and it's, but this thing is like because they, they 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 did harp on uh the aspect of multiculturalism for religion right for the different religions that were there mm-hmm. islam and christianity and whatever and weird the ancient civilizations weird were there. substrate hinduism I'm sure and it's paganism like cannibalistic snake worship or some shit but you know whatever whatever they was there the snakes i mean the most well actually looking back into it you know, the most ancient world uh the most ancient civilizations had a lot of snake worship though. well we can get into that in a different episode about ancient snake worship but um the thing is is that they had and uh, to your point uh, i think in indonesia it's more about eating snakes oh that's well i guess it is asia right they eat anything but <laughs> they the the concept of multiculturalism though was very prominent in java because you had the influx of japanese of chinese of indians of british of you know dutch of all these different these racial groups and cultural groups and everything else so it was like this multi-ethnic trade thing and that narrative has really persisted on now uh again it's really weird there's a lot of parallels between the voc and or or dutch east india or dutch dutch indonesia and the modern narrative of corporate capital being the 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 flagship of multiculturalism Uh, you know yeah i hadn't thought of that but yeah yeah it's like okay yes there there it is weird there's they they talk about how humane they are and how yeah. they're getting everybody to work Our together trade, like trade is as is an as a is an arbiter for multiculturalism right like all the world's races and and ethnicities and 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 cultures can get along together as long as we all abide by the all holy concept of trade so i blame the dutch <laughs> i hate to say it but like they did really started like they they the dutch east india company specifically the voc really did start it with uh bonds and stocks and all kinds of other no, i mean training. i'm just talking about the racial the stuff futures oh well that too i mean it's like all of that like the the corporate it's a business thing it's it's not just that they did both right well it's one thing it's, when it's you're melding well, here's the thing it's, it's the it's, marriage between corporations and it, it's one thing when you're applying multiculturalism to a colonial empire right then yeah, you gotta as a white dude, you gotta get along with your yellow bros yeah. and work with them. For maybe trade. there's some race mixing that happens. Probably shouldn't happen, but like. But to know, be fair, it is on like, the periphery. But like, yeah, it's, it's on, on the periphery. periphery and, yeah, you know, so maybe you got to do that. But like, when you take that yeah. ideology and apply it to the homeland, you're just killing yourself. Right. Exactly. That's you can't you can't bring that home with you. You have to leave it at the edge of empire, and that's the thing. So the edge of empire is where you make your money. It's also, and but historically, we've even seen this throughout all kinds of literature, where we know that at the edge of civilizations is where racial and ethnic mixing occurs. Right. It's 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 where the two meldings of two civilizations come together it's like two uh two bodies of water meeting you've seen this before anybody's seen this if you look at it at a bird's eye yeah, view some salty water and some clean water yeah, like and brackish, they mix together you know, and then it's, it's like brackish but eh. it, but even but even in two sa- bodies of salt water right you can see where uh there is there is that that thin line of water mixture between the two uh currents 
right? You can see, you can physically see this. If you look at a bird's eye view from, from over the oceans or anything else, where you see two bodies of water mixture, you see right in the middle where there's a different current melting between the two of them. And this happens throughout all of, all the world, throughout all of history. But you, again, as you pointed out, you don't bring that shit home with you because the entirety of the Indian Ocean isn't like a melting pot between the Pacific Ocean. It's only where it actually meets. Yeah, yeah. You know? Well, but let's let's just talk about the Japs for a second. So, right. the Japanese in World War II, they needed to secure the rubber. They needed to secure the oil. Right. They needed to kick the uh, round eyes. The the well, wait, <laughs> Huigui. No, wait. What are, we're not Huigui. That's the black people. Oh, we're, we're talking about the Gaijin. The Gaijin. Yeah. Yeah. The they round eye Gaijin. Yeah. Huigui is black people. Oh, really? Right. I don't know. I'm. I, I've. I've, I've been to Japan. I just didn't remember. What no, they, sorry. They, it's a Chinese they just expression. Kind of, okay. Yeah. Because that sounds more Chinese, but the like, guy they, Jin, they just refer to as all blanketly as Gaijin. They had to get the Gaijin out of their co-prosperity sphere mm. and obviously get the rubber and the oil right. for their war industry. So they pushed down and also <coughs> America- securing those spice trades is also still a thing there too. I mean, yeah, they had, I, mean I, don't think, as- I don't think Japanese women need their, you know, pumpkin well, spice no, lattes. I mean, but- they, they sold it to us is the thing it, right. like, because uh, they can, they controlled the, the trade no, to I, the I, Middle I, East. I, yeah. I get it. I get it. Yeah. So they took over Indonesia and it's, it's sort of a familiar story to Americans. Uh, if you've seen this sort of old world war two propaganda movies like Bataan, you ever see that movie? <laughs> yeah. I saw that when I was a kid. It's awesome. It's like these Japs just like bayonet charging or like they'll they'll be wearing uh like full on ghillie suits. Right. Uh, yeah. They'll be like dressed like a, a palm tree and they're like <laughs> sneaking up on you and the Americans like open up with the browning all these Japs like <laughs> <laughs> so brutal. <laughs> but it is it is glorious. But yeah, I mean the Japanese pushed the Americans out of the Philippines and right. MacArthur bravely got in a submarine and ran away. And, <laughs> wow, what a hero. And then the Japs like, you know, pushed further into the Dutch East Indies. Yeah. And also India too. For, and then, uh, I mean, f- apparently the Dutch and the British and the Americans together put up something of a, a decent fight against them and like, but the Japanese just had overwhelming force and, and took over the whole area. Right. We didn't have the, the, the logistical strategic elements. No, I mean, to, at that, at that, that point, that. at that point, like Roosevelt was thinking about you know how to you know save Europe for international Jewry and not about how to save the Indonesians from Japanese wah, imperialism. Wah. We got highways though. <laughs> <laughs> I know. So the Japs took over Indonesia, and you know, obviously, as World War II went on, they were kicked out and they they fled. But you had this weird situation in the four years after World War II where the Indonesian, it's kind of, it's similar to the situation that you know about in Vietnam with the French and the the uh, local revolutionary forces or the situation in China where you had like a local independence movement that was fighting against the Gaijin or the infidels, the Kafir, like right. whatever, yeah. white man, get out. <laughs> and... It's really strange because the Dutch continued fighting to maintain their empire and they were supported by the British. Surprisingly. They were supported by the British. But not by And by British and uh, I guess in the the first couple years of this by the British, uh, British India. And they were supported also by some Japanese, like 900 Japanese like holdout soldiers, according (laughs) to Wikipedia, which is pretty badass. Right. But they were opposed, the Dutch were opposed by America, the Soviet Union, and like, I don't know, maybe France? No, probably not by France. 
definitely America I, and the Soviet Union. But it's because... It, but it's, it's like yeah. America and the Soviet Union versus the old imperial powers of the Dutch and the British right. fighting over independence of Indonesia. And well, that's the thing about the crazy. Cold War. And like... You know, of course, America will say, well, you know, we just care about my freedoms. It's no, like, it's bull bullshit. Fucking shit, bullshit. bullshit. It's the same reason why the CIA went against Rhodesia. It's the same thing. It's because the Americans and Russians were trying to divide the entire world up between between the two of them during the Cold War. And they were kicking out the old empires. Imagine being fucking Churchill. Oh, like, yeah. Imagine being Churchill for a second. Like a total you, piece you have of like shit. held out against against the Germans for four years against air raids and everything yeah. and, and sea blockade and then the americans are like yo fuck you we're ha- we're we're deal- we're working with the soviets to fuck you over and destroy your empire right to divide the world up whatever and this the thing is like you and the only reason i'm imagining why the british were like yo the dutch really should hold on to indonesia is because otherwise our claims in india are challenged yes you know probably yeah so or other parts of africa but that's the thing is again like you have you have this divvying up after the after the second world war of the world between them they're like all right no more european colonialism because european europe can't be a thing at this point it was the it was the disempowering of europe after world war ii that really destroyed colonialism between you know the united states and russia i mean i'm just wondering about those 900 japanese holdouts oh, right <laughs> who fought for the indonesians for independence because there were also japanese forces maybe I, how do you reconcile I, that I, as may, there were, maybe maybe these other japanese forces were like indonesians who had been trained by the japanese i don't know I, right yeah i need to i didn't read a whole book on this but basically there were a lot of japanese forces who were working with america and then like small holdouts loyal to the emperor and the east asian co- prosperity sphere <laughs> <laughs> who fought against the empire and like who was right right yeah i mean as far as japanese interests that's the thing is like what i don't think any of it was really in the favor of of japan i mean even even like a like a a dutch a dutch colonial indonesia probably would have been more favorable to fewer gaijin and less powerful gaijin better for japan yeah at that point in time i could see that because they were they were just in control of indonesia they had just taken it so anything you know would have been better at that point but at the same time how do you reconcile that from like the history because again remember who killed all the population of banda it was the japanese (laughs) like how did the i mean they were just contracted come on i mean okay i'll give you that (laughs) but the thing is though is that the like are you still butthurt at the prussian at the not the prussians the hessians for well, I mean, like, I, my family was on the other side of the drink at that point. <laughs> but the thing is, is that, like, the Bandanese haven't forgotten, even to this day. And that's kind of the thing, is, like, how was how that politically organized at the time? Because if the people of the Spice Islands and of Java and all other stuff remember the Japanese as being not once, but now twice, because, again, we must remember the Japanese for what they were in World War II, and they were highly genocidal in their practices towards other people, even their own in Okinawa. Like, they really were just like, yo, you have... Highly folk slang. Yeah, hardcore, like, if you were one shade browner than me, you're dead. Like, they were not playing around. Um, You know, so it's... It, the whole thing about oh Germany was the most racist like no they were allied with Italy right like as compared to like the the Japanese they they literally were committing genocide amongst even their own people in Okinawa anybody that wasn't Japanese was getting the boot and you see this across the place from you know getting from, the katana as oh they sorry say. yeah getting the katana they were getting they were getting you know uh, uh, seppuku'd all over the place so they were taking out the Chinese they're taking out the Indians they were taking out uh, the Vietnamese they were taking out anything in Indochina Indonesia uh, all throughout 
throughout the, the Polynesian areas, even into Guam, you name it, the Japanese were going on a genocidal rampage. And the fact that they were like, oh shit, you know what's a bigger threat? The Dutch coming back to power. So let's side with these people we were just killing. Hold up. So <laughs> we're, we're at like two hours plus we're oh. gonna wrap up soon i didn't think that this podcast would take this long but oh damn the, we the, have you have a lot to say about indonesia it's, uh, it's really a, I, something I love, I love the trade of the voc i'm a huge fan <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's interesting I, from an economic perspective I honestly just, i just want to compare uh, at the end here let's compare the european union after world war ii mm-hmm. It's the logical thing to do in a way. Right. Because it was uh, let, the only way to consolidate power in the face of U.S. and Russia. Yeah, let's consolidate power in the face of U.S. and Russia. There are flaws to that, as we note in our clergy episode, is right. how, how that is not going to work. Right. To be uh, fair, though, you the, can't You can't have economic power without political power. Right. But the EU should have continued with colonialism. Doesn't it make sense for, as an Asian person, to team up with all the other Asian people to form the greater east asia co-prosperity sphere right to fight out the gaijin right no it does and that's the thing is like the independence movements were brilliant right the gandhi and all that other stuff that we we know of in india and that's everybody talks about gandhi blah blah blah, blah even though he was like a apparently a rapist and pedophile or whatever the hell else. yeah gandhi sucks whatever right <laughs> he has some pretty cool sayings every once in a blue moon you know like be the change you want to see in the world but that could be really construed you know, all the in best indians fall for hitler in the ss we <sighs> all know this extremely based and true but because <laughs> <laughs> um, actually and a little known fact that most people don't know is that the very first um while we're in the orient real quick uh the very first people to ever meet the dalai lama in uh in tibet were the SS guys mm. and then the uh, expedition with uh, Ernst Schaefer and uh, Bruno Beggar. And so, yeah, but uh, that's a, that's a, a total. It wasn't when the, when the Dalai Lama was fleeing from Tibet, wasn't he met by that Argentinian uh, Hitler worshiper who is awesome and whose name escapes me? Oh, uh, you're talking about um, something with a C. Uh, he was friends. No, not no, 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 no. Oh, Evola, like, was an autist who sat around at home. Right, um, yeah. No, Argentina. It's the guy who hung out with Savitri Devi and... Serrano, Miguel yes. Serrano. Yes. Okay, yeah. Yeah. I think he was. Serrano met the Dalai Lama when I'm he sure. fled I, from... I, I actually don't know about that, but I, I, I'm i assuming that if anybody would have wanted to meet the Dalai Lama, it would have been Serrano. Because <laughs> uh, again, yeah, Devi, Devi, everybody knows about, well, not everybody, but people in the movement do know about Savitri Devi and everything else like that. She did immigrate to India and all this stuff. So this... this Far East Indies plays a massive role in multiple spheres of discourse, right? For economics, for national socialism, for all types of things. This is a very large crux of the world as far as history is concerned that we don't talk about enough, honestly. Um, and it's it's good that we were able to at least de- you know, de- devote at least two hours to some of this. Because honestly, what we should do uh, in the future is we should talk about India mm. and those things. Because there's a lot to even discuss there. We didn't even touch barely on India. We just talked about a few islands east of India for two and some change hours on the Dutch. And this is just a minute element of what happens out in the East well, Indies. Well, we also talked about, we talked about European imper- European imperialism from the perspective of some coastlands and islands off of Germany. Oh, well, oh, damn. <laughs> Is that what we're going to relegate that to? <laughs> oh, damn. But, uh, you know, yeah, it was, it was outside our normal topic, which is that, uh, you know, Germany and the frontier between Germanantum and oh, yeah. the, the track, the tr- boundless tracks of Slavic waste to the east 
should be wheat fields. <laughs> yeah, well. But yeah, no. So no, no our, I mean, uh, yeah. Our normal I, I, topic we we love the, the Slavs. We love the Slavs. Yeah. We, Slavic history is fascinating, <laughs> and I, I need to, I need to find. I need to find somebody who is knowledgeable about because you're the only Russia. one who can read yeah, Cyrillic. <laughs> no offense, uh, Brad, but you're not you're not you're not the the Slavic guy. I'm not at all. I will I, not even pretend to be. <laughs> I am the Slavic guy. I cannot read Cyrillic. I need to find somebody who can talk talk about uh, the history of Russia and yeah. and Lithuania and Eastern Europe because that's some interesting stuff too. But I'm but, glad we got to talk about Indonesia yeah. because it is this strange chapter in Western white man history it's almost forgotten at this point that nobody knows about yeah and it, and it not not that it was just it's like equally cool. esoteric it's not even esoteric it's, it played a massive role in the shaping of our modern world it really did the way european politics work the way colonialism was ta- you know discussed all types of things the trade economics all kinds of things were shaped because of the specific area and specifically because of three tiny fucking islands off the coast of java and that's the thing and and that's and yes and Back to a slight digression. Yes, it would make a lot of sense for them to rebel and get control of their own trade because they did. Remember, before we talked about the very beginning of the episode, that the the, the Dutch had to take control of a a multifaceted civilization or a multifaceted trade agreement that had that had existed in Java. There there had been multiple trade agreements or multiple trade uh, entities. Uh, so they had to monopolize that over time. So the, the history of uh, European colonialism in the East Indies was based on monopolizing the spice trade because again prices were too high when there was too much competition they had to monopolize it so that was the whole the whole reason of getting into a a conglomerate or a monopoly for the dutch in indonesia was to capitalize on trade and we don't i don't think we i don't think most people in the Western world talk about this this element of history. It's always, oh, my racism, my slaves, my blah, blah. That's only a microscopic part of this whole organization. Yeah, it, it's fascinating. And if you, if you, you know, you look at the world map, the three main choke points of all world trade are Panama Canal, mm. Suez Canal. Yep. And Straits of Malacca. Yeah, Suez Canal being uh, the Horn of Africa for most people you know, think about, which is why. But but also look at this is also why the three largest places for piracy are in those places: the Caribbean for the for uh, uh for you know the, the what, what the hell uh, yeah, Panama. traffic moving through yeah. the Americas. Yeah. yeah, for Panama Canal, the the Caribbean is the biggest piracy area, right? For the Horn of Africa and Somalia around the Suez Canal, largest piracy area. Straits of Malacca around Jakarta and Java. Uh, it, you know, all in Indonesian area, another like the largest place of piracy. It just make it all the things of, of modern economics of modern world, you know, workings or whatever are based on these ancient trade routes or, or, or these these major trade hubs. And honestly, like I hate to say it, but the Jews are kind of right in thinking that most of the world does revolve around market economics uh, and it has for quite some time. I mean, not to say that the way that they do where they worship mammon and it's like, let's rub two shekels together and make magic happen. But I, they, it really is a big deal uh, that we shouldn't neglect as far as understanding history is concerned. All right, well... Thank you for coming on, William. It's been an excellent episode and hope to continue this talk about colonialism, both in the Far East and in Africa and in Eastern Europe. And now in in the Western world. (laughs) We're on the receiving end. Counter-colonialism. Well, if no, I, I wouldn't even call it counter. I would well, just, it's, it is colonialism. Sorry, but when I say colonialism, people. I meant white people colonialism. Right, okay. I meant <laughs> white people expanding. <laughs> Beneficial colonialism to us. <laughs> yes, yes. 
Bye. 